Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Movies, a self-explanatory podcast. My name is Daniel Berrios and today marks another installment of In For Films, the show where we get to learn about film lovers and aficionados through the four movies that make them who they are. That This can be the first movies they fell in love with, this could be their favorite movies, this could be the movies that made them think of the world differently, whatever they decide to choose. And today I've got another friend, a recent friend. I got introduced to her through our mutual buddy Brian Sudfield of the Film Fragment podcast and uh i checked out her podcast and she's fucking awesome so let's go down the list she is based out of seattle washington librarian by day podcaster pop culture writer and secret agent by night graduated (laughs) from the university of utah studying art history graduated from brooklyn's pratt institute with a master's in information and library science she has bylines in bright wall dark room screen spec film days the daily drunk certified forgotten she has her own blog daily uh, delayed responses she hosts two podcasts pay attention folks fang club a vampire film coverage extraordinaire and oscars podcast cast <laughs> there's two a's in there the oscar is possessive because it is an oscar isaac ret- career retrospective podcast wonderful human being incredibly like smart and full of taste my friends this is leah carlson downey thank you for having me that was a very impressive introduction you make me sound much more accomplished than i am i appreciate the pump up before we start you gotta do it you gotta get people pumped up you gotta let motherfuckers know who you are damn it Yes, yes. Thank you. I I appreciate it. Uh, Thanks for having me on your podcast. I really enjoy your regular reviews and I love the In Four Films episodes. They're always so fun. So it's an honor to be here to get to do my own. (laughs) It's an honor to hear the compliments. All right. Well, if you motherfuckers have not seen an In Four Films episode, we're going to go down four films chosen by Leah. And I say this every episode, but it keeps on happening. They like... Each person picks four completely different movies, and it's always a fun to kind of expand my cinematic knowledge with this, but even as people pick new movies that I, that, uh, pick new movies that haven't been talked about before, this is the very first time that a guest has picked four movies that I've not seen a single one. There are no rewatches for me here. This is the very first time. Everything's fresh to me, including some classics. <laughs> So, let's see. Leah's Chosen. Some Like It Hot from 1959, directed by Billy Wilder. 1776, made in 1972, directed by Peter M. Hunt. You've Got Mail from 1998, directed by Nora Ephron. And Walk Hard, The Dewey Cox Story from 07, directed by the legendary, I think he's pretty legendary in his own right, Jake Kasdan brand new movies to me and i'm just excited to get on i'm just excited to kick this thing off so leah dealer's choice what do you want to start with first so first i just want to say my philosophy picking these four movies was i went through and i tried to think of movie the movies that i've watched the most in my life aside from holiday movies uh because i couldn't think of my four favorite i didn't I couldn't think of four that felt 
you know, especially formative to me. So I just thought, let's go go by the numbers. What movies have I watched the most times? So there were a couple that I ruled out because I've talked about them on other podcasts before. So one that I didn't mention for this episode is Shakespeare in Love. I love that movie, but I've talked about it on another podcast. Okay. Um, and also Inside Lewin Davis. Oh, yeah. Um, talked about <laughs> oh, on multiple yeah. podcasts. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, we don't need to do that one again. Uh, so, so, so holiday movies and those two taken out. Uh, these are probably the movies that I've watched the most, rewatched the most in my life. So that was my, my philosophy for picking my, my four films. <laughs> Very nice. Just scroll through the letterbox, pick the most watched, and let's go for it. <laughs> All right, but like I said, yes. your choice. Where do you want to start first? We can go chronologically. Let's start with some like it hot. Not since Scarface, so much action. Not since the Marx Brothers, so much comedy. Not since the Seven Year Itch, so much Marilyn. The best picture this year will also be the funniest. Good night, sugar. Good night, honey. There's one thing sure, boy never met girl like this before. You've never laughed more at sex or a picture about it. You stay here as long as you like. Jack may have beaten Tony to the sugar, but not for long. You're not giving yourself a chance. Don't fight it. Maryland sing the fabulous songs of the Roaring Twenties on the United Artists soundtrack album. Running wild, lost control, running wild, mighty bold, feeling gay, reckless too, carefree mind all the time, never blue, always going, don't know where, always showing, I don't care, don't love nobody. It's not worthwhile All alone Running wild Okay, so Some Like It Hot. This is not my first Billy Wilder. I've seen Apartment and Sunset Boulevard, which I like dearly. This is, however, my first Marilyn. And... I feel like it's it's a lot of people's first Marilyn. It's actually a lot of people's first classic film too you know like i think it's a good intro to uh black and white film and film from you know pre-1970 <laughs> was it your first intro into black and white um not black and white maybe i feel like i had seen maybe like it's a wonderful life or something like that before um and i watched a lot of black and white tv with my dad growing up like he his he's a, a gen xer so he didn't watch all these old 
TV shows in black and white when he was a kid, but he liked them all. And so when I was a kid, I would watch I Love Lucy and Bewitched and I Dream of Jeannie and all that kind of stuff with my dad on TV land. Um, But it it probably was one of my first, one of the first black and white films that I watched and, and fell in love with. Yeah. Yeah. What made you fall in love with it immediately? Like, how many how many times do you think you've watched something like it hot? Ooh, a lot. So I first watched it when I was a teenager, and I've probably watched it at least once a year since I first saw it. So we're talking probably 15 <laughs> times. <laughs> um, I fell in love with it because, hey, it's so funny. It's so funny. And... It's one of those older films, you know, I appreciate old film and I love film history, but there are certain films that just don't age. They still feel fresh. You can watch Some Like It Hot. It's from 1959, but it feels like it could have been made yesterday. It doesn't feel like it's aged. And so I think for someone who I watched it, I think when I was 15 or 16 for the first time, it just reached out and grabbed me. I didn't have to kind of you know, prepare myself to watch an old film or look look at it through a certain lens or appreciate it historically. You know, it just was so good exactly as it was and it spoke to me and it's funny and it's it's it just feels fresh still, you know? Yeah, one of the things that struck out uh, one of the things that stuck out to me is the way this thing opens and maybe it's like a blend of uh, two styles in my kind of heart where at first off, this gangster fight at the beginning. If you don't know, something like it hot. It's about these two musicians played by Tony Curtis and Jack Lemon, who are like down on their luck losers, just trying to bum it to whatever gig and whatever money they can scrounge up. And they are witnesses to a mob hit. And so fearing for their lives, they end up taking this gig all the way from Chicago down to Florida and disguise themselves as women to play in a women's band. Like the they're trying to hide from this dude as pos- like as much as possible because he's a bad motherfucker and will shoot anybody in sight. No witness is left alive. So that opening shot with the gangsters where they're chasing, uh, they're being chased by the police and you're seeing like gunshot holes through the car and you're sitting there just like, okay, for one, if you have this sort of like stuffy understanding of black and white, like you think that all of this is going to be a little bit too tame, you know, Hayes Code, that kind of thing. Uh, it's got this real intensity with the way Wilder shoots it. A lot of insert shots of like the police car lights being blown out and like people flip over and the car crashes. It is just like, wow, this is really like modern. And yet at the same time, I'm seeing like that the guys aren't really driving the car. There's like rear projection in the background. And then like you're trying to figure out where the special effects are coming in. So it's a combination of feeling really modern and energetic but also giving you kind of like a peek behind the curtain into the special effects of how stuff works and i and i just mm. like that i have a little bit of like a how did it get made mind that sense yeah yeah it's interesting that you mentioned the haze code because some like it hot is regularly cited as one of the films that kind of really pushed against the haze code and helped bring about its demise i mean by the late 50s a lot of filmmakers were pushing against the Hayes Code. It hadn't officially uh, gone out of use, but there were lots of filmmakers who were pushing the boundaries and seeing how much they could get away with and seeing what would make money and, you know, see what would what they could get past the censors basically. And or how they could how they could flagrantly ignore the the code, I guess, and see if they could get away with it. Um, and yeah, I mean I think one thing that a lot of people 
are surprised by when they watch some like it hot is a the cross dressing um, <laughs> is something that you wouldn't assume would be allowed to be shown in a film in a film that was made under the Hayes Code, and also the the playfulness and the uh, the sort of the way that the cross dressing it's funny, but it's not like the butt of the joke necessarily. Like neither of the characters ha- are punished for cross-dressing for most of the film. You know what I mean? Like, there's a a real playful spirit to it, and particularly the famous, famous ending, which we'll get to, um, really seems like something that, again, it feels kind of contemporary to our time. It feels feels closer in spirit to something that's, uh, you know, more... It's 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 more permissive, I guess, than you would expect a film from the '50s to be allowed to be. Uh, yeah, it's a movie, and that's one of the reasons I like it too. Yeah, it's a movie that's like explicitly about like, in in some way, literally stepping in somebody else's shoes. Like the comments that they'll make about like trying to catch the train for the first time when they're in high heels, and Jack Lemmon's just in there like, how do how do they walk in this? Like my feet are killing me. And so much of the movie is being taken from their perspectives of what it's like to be treated by a woman from men. Like, I think their first time entering in their hotel room, they're talking about, like, all the bullshit they had to endure just to get up there. It's like, dude, I got my ass grabbed (laughs) in the elevator. Like, what is this? Like, this is terrible. And they're, like, offended. And there's a, a feminine affection in the voice but there is this genuine emotion that comes through. It's this understanding of experience that I really, I resonated with a lot. Especially, I think it comes from Jack Lemon, who like more further commits himself. Like, there's a part of me that's like wondering if this is maybe like, a, I don't know, like a precursor to like trans cinema. Like, there's I I can't, so especially when it seems like Jack Lemon is sort of like becoming more interested in the guy the old dirty pervert man who's interested in him osgood who has just like the most shit-eating grin of a human being i've ever seen it's like the monopoly guy melted a little bit and Mm -hmm. when he's getting more interested in like his advances and feeling himself like being swooned and wanting to be secured and taken care of it reflects character arcs that were in the beginning of the movie Like, all Jack Lemmon really wants to do is just have a stable gig and be, like, make decent money and not worry about anything. And so now that he's met this man who will give him this opportunity, it's sort of like he's sort of, like, allowing himself that freedom. Like, it doesn't matter that he's a guy necessarily. And I don't know, maybe Mm -hmm. that just comes with living in that skin and getting comfortable with it for so long. I don't know. I just found myself thinking stuff like that. Yeah, and I think that part of that comes from, as I said, the way that the the film doesn't necessarily treat um, Tony Curtis's and Jack Lemmon's characters dressing up as women. It, it's not like a hurdy hur hur. It's so dumb, and they're so uncomfortable. It's more the circumstances are funny, but the jokes don't necessarily come from the cross dressing. And and Jack Lemmon's character, in particular, as you mentioned almost starts to seem more comfortable when he's he's Daphne yeah. um, than he is when he's Jerry. And there is something so subversive about that and something so free about that. Um, I, I totally pick up what you're picking up as well. I don't there, know yeah. if that necessarily stems from the 
I guess the romantic subplot that starts between Tony Curtis and Marilyn Monroe, where I, at the beginning of the movie, it's definitely Jack Lemmon being horndog, trying to take advantage of the situation. But it's like almost thought as that romantic interest with Tony Curtis starts to come in, he adopts more of like the cock blocking best friend uh, archetype. And yeah. that it flips on a dime, but it works so well and it makes Lemon a more interesting character as a result. And uh, yeah, Daphne is just having a blast in this. And I love, and I love yeah. like her side eye and everything. Yes. Yes. I, Jack Lemon is so funny in this film he is so funny and i think he gets most of the best lines and the best pieces yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I love his performance in this <laughs> also can we mutually agree that tony curtis can get it because like as soon as i oh absolutely as soon as i like watched the opening of this movie i was like who uh, okay i know i gotta pay attention to that guy because it's your fit his face is just like chiseled it's beautiful Oh, Tony Curtis is a beautiful man. Absolutely, absolutely. And he's also a beautiful woman. He is. When he's dressed up as Josephine, he's so pretty. You sent me that screen grab today of him yassifying himself into an anonymity. Yeah. But it's like the poise of like the puckered lip that is so mm. sharp. And it's like, mm-hmm. Jesus, he's going for it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's serving face. Absolutely. He is slinging it. <laughs> yes, I agree with you. Tony Curtis is beautiful. He could get it any day. <laughs> you mentioned that this was your first Marilyn Monroe film, and it was mine as well. Yeah. I had never seen Marilyn Monroe in anything before I saw her in Some Like It Hot. And I think this is this is one of her more iconic performances, I would say. Um, this is the one, like I said, I feel like a lot of people see this one first. Um and she is also so great in this yes. film. She's so funny. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it was weird because uh, watching her, it was... And we do this right around, like, right after this whole blonde controversy has come out. And so I'm like, I'm oh, yeah. looking at this woman <laughs> and I'm like, okay, what what is it about her? Because I've never seen it before. And I think the thing that rolled in my brain was she's got, like, this... Drew Barrymore, like the most adorable, sweet person in the world, and yet she's got the energy of Margot Robbie. And I really do think mm. if we're gonna like, I, if we're gonna pick a contemporary now, I think Margot Robbie is the closest we're gonna get to Marilyn Monroe, just because uh, that opening scene again. Like my favorite stuff in this movie, honestly, is just the stuff on the train because the opening scene we see her yeah. walking in, she's drinking, just chugging whiskey, but she's so sweet about trying to get Josephine and Daphne on her side that. Mm-hmm. There's this kind of manicness there, this nervousness. There's a hiding of secrets. She's sly, but not in a way that suggests any, I guess, ill doing. It's just that she wants to have her fun and just doesn't want to be bothered by it. And, and yeah. so I love yeah. characters that you immediately know there's something like there's at least three, four, five movies in their background. And. Yeah, exactly. And so you know, Sugar is one of those characters for sure. Yes, yes. it's a, there's like three, four, five movies in her background, and then she brings that to this, 
and just the energy that she brings when hanging out with the girls she's sort of like mysterious too like uh the great shot of like they're having this like fucked up jungle juice party at the top of this train like bunk there's 12 women in one bunk and like you see her head pop such out of it such good physical comedy such good physical and it's great comedy. blocking too <laughs> You see yes. everybody's face and everybody doing something different, and Marilyn just like barely gets popped out of there. It's like watching. A, you ever see those videos of like baby goats that are uh, trying to go to the feeding hole, and the farmer has to like untangle them or whatever, and it like pops out. It's kind of what Marilyn Monroe looks like to me in this. She just slides out, but that adds to the mystery and the mystique behind her. So I don't know. There's so much that she's doing here, and. Uh, I also really like that this is a character that there's a very fine difference, by the way, between playing dumb and playing stupid. She's not doing mm. stupid. She's doing dumb. You kind of mm. have to be willfully airy. It, it, it's not really mm. that she doesn't lack the intellect. It's that she doesn't want to be bothered by it. Yeah. She's more, I guess, driven by the the will of emotion and just like oh i want to marry rich because marrying rich is fun or i want to marry mm. this i want to hang out with this cool saxophone because the saxophone guy is cool and he's fun and so that sort of throwing mm. caution to the wind is a difficult balance to is a difficult thing to balance in a film if you don't have somebody who doesn't show like i guess with their eyes and the way they carry themselves that there is a little bit of like that brain in the background just like slightly poking at them like you know that you're not like you know you're not in a good situation right and i always feel like there's yeah. this tiny bit of self-loathing in her that i was just like wow this is really like a really really good performance in something that is super short it really doesn't give her that much to do but she really sells it i love i loved it and I think that that's why this is one of her more iconic performances is there is kind of a sadness and a, a self-loathing in Sugar. Like she, it's almost like she is a good time girl, but she also puts it on, right? Yes. And I love that scene in the bathroom when she's getting the ice on the train when she kind of opens up to... Um, Josephine about you know how just she has terrible luck and you know um it's very it gives very much drunk girl in bathroom conversation yeah, yeah. but there but it's but it, there's something so like genuinely sad about it too and she kind of brushes it off she's like yeah you know whatever haha but she there's something you know there's a hint of tragedy to the character of sugar and i think because in our national imagination we think of we know Marilyn Monroe as a tragic figure and we know mm. her story and we know um, her how her life went was you know or the public version of it anyway and so I think there's something about this character of Sugar who is so kind of you know ditzy and sexualized and fun on the outside but has this hint of tragedy inside that I think I think Marilyn Monroe brings that to the character. I don't think it's necessarily in the script, you know, written. I think, you know, there is that scene, but I think that sense really comes from her. And it comes, too, from, I think, what we bring to her when we watch the film. Um, you know what? Yeah. Because I definitely was going into this, like, it, it sounds weird to say, but it's like, okay, I know she's gorgeous. Like, I've seen her in pictures or whatever. Like, she's a gorgeous person. Like, 
this is the very first time I watch Marilyn Monroe. I have to like leave that at the door mostly, at least until like it's appropriate later on, like on the boat or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like leave that and just focus on like what she's bringing to it, and especially as the movie's talking about, I guess really putting in the forefront the female experience when it comes to dealing in social situations with men i definitely Mm -hmm. find that you know that sort of ditziness and sexualization is something that she's built as sort of a defense because you can't go trauma dump to men but you can trauma dump to your best girls and even Mm -hmm. then she's so used to that that's why that scene comes across like she's brushing off the tragedy when really you look at like the second movie that she was in before this one and there'll be like a big tragedy with that saxophone player maybe for the first mm-hmm. time or like playing in men's mm-hmm. bands you know as she talks mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think i think it's a it's a great performance of hers and i uh of course the iconic scene of hers from some like it hot is the the um when she sings and she's in that kind of sheer dress and she's singing I want to be loved by you Um, and it's she's so gorgeous she's so gorgeous and that that dress to die for that's an iconic fashion moment right there (laughs) (laughs) okay can we talk about the iconic dance scene where Jack Lemmon and Osgood Fielding the third or the second I don't remember which one it is I think it's the third. Okay, the third. I've seen this movie so many times. I should. Know. We should. <laughs> this is the kind of thing that'll get us killed at trivia night. Uh, I know. Right? <laughs> no, like when Jack Lemon and this guy. I don't remember the actor. I'll look it up as I talk. But uh, Oscar Fielding the second. They're dancing. Is just like this wonderful break in the middle of the movie where they're trying to keep him off the yacht. So, uh, what is it? Tony Curtis can dick around. And just the dancing that there's so much commitment. It's like, oh my god, this is so much fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Who is this guy? Joe E. Brown. Like, oh my god, look at this dude. There's like his smile literally stretches from ear to ear, and his ears aren't that small either. <laughs> like it really He does have a very like a really leering kind like of like a stretchy, yeah. expressive face. Can we talk mm-hmm. about how creepy the men are in this movie though? They're also creepy. You are are very right that this film is preoccupied with creepy men. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> like, uh, it's Jack Lemmon at first, and I kind of get it. And they're just making sex jokes that'll fly over kids' heads. This is a this is also the very first, not the very first episode of this show where we do a G-rated movie, but it's the first episode where technically we have two. And nowadays they would not be rated G in the fucking slightest. No, no the fuck no. they wouldn't. Because Jack no Lemons way. is out here talking about like getting it on and getting all the sugar in the world and all these innuendos. Yeah. And then Osgood yeah. straight up like grabs Daphne's ass in the elevator. Mm-hmm. And the movie straight up like treats it as like, yo, this this is a shitty thing to do. Don't do this. And then mm-hmm. I don't know what possesses Daphne to like come along for the ride later. I'm not totally sure if she's drawn in fully or not, or if like Jerry is still. I think it's exactly what I think it's exactly what you said before. I think it's the promise of security and being taken care of. It's the money, you know. And I think that reminds me of another Marilyn Monroe film, Gentle Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which is fantastic, and I think maybe my very favorite Marilyn performance, um, where you know she's playing the gold digger in that 
case, but she's so pragmatic about it, you know? Like, her character is, again, plays the kind of ditz. But she knows what she's doing, and she knows what she's doing is transactional. Um, and I think that that's what's going on with Jerry slash Daphne, too. You know, I think he's like, well, you know, if I'm going to be taken care of, is this the worst thing in the world? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's It seems like a very pragmatic decision rather than an emotion-based I could, one. Yeah, okay, I can see that. And I guess that's another commentary about, like, uh, women seeking security, especially in, like, this yeah. scenario, in this uh, era of, uh, I like, mm-hmm. when you were talking about the Hayes Code earlier, I like this is a movie set in 1929, explicitly in the yeah. era of, like, prohibition and taking shots at that, uh, anytime that they're in yeah. the, the speakeasy and they're talking about, like, hey, let me get him some booze, and he's like, we don't have booze, we have coffee, we have Scotch coffee, we have Canadian coffee, <laughs> we have Irish coffee, <laughs> that shit's, That's a great it's so fucking funny, uh, one of my favorite jokes is, uh, whenever they're, I think whenever... Uh, Joe is trying to convince Jerry to let them spend the money on gambling. And he's like, look, we don't know what could happen. The stock market could crash tomorrow. Mary Pitchford could divorce Douglas Fairbanks. And for history nerds, we're sitting there like, ah! It's... <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, movies used to reference that shit all the time. And I just, I love that. Little nuggets of joy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I am also... Um a nerd and I love period pieces which I think will get us into our our next uh film too but I love watching period pieces from from times that seem like the past now like we would make a period piece about 1959 right now so I like watching films from the 50s about the 20s or the 30s or whatever I think it's so illuminating about you know what people of the time when the film was made thought about we're thinking about you know history at that point and uh yeah so i love i love the 20s by way of the 50s i think it's great (laughs) uh what do you make by the way of uh because this this uh, we're going back to creepiness the creepiest scene in the movie to me is tony curtis who's decided to put on this facade of millionaire in order to seduce marilyn monroe and like have her fall in love with him but it's such a weird extended sequence he invites her on the yacht and then he like pretends to be asexual in order to get her to kiss yes. him multiple times. Yes. And mm-hmm. I I don't quite know what is going on in his head. Like Yeah, I mean it definitely feels like entrapment. Like I, I know what you're saying. It feels predatory in that he's putting on these false pretenses. And I don't know why, you know, the disguise and pretending to have money, that doesn't really bother me, but him pretending to have a sexual dysfunction, because, I I mean, you could say asexual, or you could say impotent, or I, I'm not I don't, sure. I think he says it's um, like a medical thing. I don't know. I think it's because yeah. maybe we're so used to, like, you know, people flash their money on Instagram, and people pretend to be cooler than they actually are, and then it's very easy, I guess, to be found out in that regard. It really would only take, like, one solid, like, restaurant bill that couldn't be paid for her to like figure it out right (laughs) to figure it out right but i don't know it's something about just him uh i I don't know maybe it's just like the nature of today and sexual exploitation Mm -hmm. and abuse that's kind of just like Mm -hmm. oh it sends me like a tingle alarm no i yeah no i i agree with you i mean that is the scene that i think is that's one of the scenes that's played for laughs that I don't necessarily find funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree with you. And I and it is, it's, 
it definitely comes down to this question of like she doesn't know she's not she can't consent if she doesn't have all the facts kind of a thing yes. <laughs> you know like you know i yeah for sure for sure um but it is it is funny when he's pretending not to be turned on like his whole like thing <laughs> he's, where he's like, trying to like, he's he's <laughs> trying not to be rigid in the wrong ways it's yeah <laughs> yeah exactly that is just <laughs> Because, again, that's the part of the movie where, like, my male brain took over. I'm just like, oh, Jesus, God, it's Marilyn Monroe. Like, oh, my God. Like, that woman's... Yeah. <laughs> and the way they shot that, too. And there's, like, this gorgeous silhouette that's made from her in the shadows. And just, like, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. This beautiful mm-hmm. black and white photography mm-hmm. here. And I'm just like, oh, God. Okay, here we go. Dude, you better... Feel his pain. Dude, you better, like... <laughs> you better be thinking about dead grandmas burning in a fire, bud. Like, that's not... That's not how it's gonna go down. Thinking about dead puppy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Every time uh-huh. she kisses you, dead puppy. <laughs> you better Pavlov yourself, motherfucker. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of consent and having all the facts, one of the best, uh, one of the worst tropes in movies is like whenever somebody has been telling a lie for a long time and then they find out the person finds out that the other person's lying and they spend like the next 15 minutes moping about it until they finally get around mm-hmm. one of my favorite parts about this we gotta talk about the ending here uh, oh classic classic it's, ending for one you wanna talk about like somebody who's like dumb ditzy not stupid uh, that whole break when uh, like they're being chased by the gangsters because of course the gangsters have gone down to Miami and like rung up at the same hotel they have they're being chased through this banquet hall they end up at like the meeting celebrating like Italian opera or some shit like that and then they do the one really stupid thing to me where it's like this dude pops out of a cake shoots everybody and like not 30 seconds later they're running out from under the table like (laughs) just just stay stay there there. nobody knows you're there (laughs) Just ride it Just out. Just hang out at least until the very last moment. No, but these fuckers take off. And it's only by the grace of the federal agent, which, like, I don't know how much, like, immunity this federal agent has. Because I'm pretty sure he would have been realistically shot dead on the spot. Because there's only one federal right. agent against, like, ten guys. But whatever. Uh, she catches wind <laughs> of all of this. He, like, kisses her while she's singing. She's like, Josephine. And then I was a part of me that's like, does she like just immediately switch to like he's a dude, or like is there a part of her that's like, hmm, I'm kind of that, that wasn't that wasn't that terrible, uh, by curious. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying yeah. again. That kind of playfulness, yes. right? Where there's like a there's just that gray area where it's anything like, goes. Oh, adventure. It's, queer. it's fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just all a little queer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Some like it hot. It's all a little queer. That's the review we're gonna stick on the Blu-ray. <laughs> But uh, then they're all running towards this boat to, like, whisk off with Osgood Fielding II, and she shows up, fully knowing what's going down, and I know at this point in his heart he's had sort of, like, this character arc where this guy who would normally be, like, a shyster and would take people, you know, for granted and really not care about them, he really does care about her, and he wants to give her the world that he knows that he cannot... And she's totally cool with it. And I guess it's that switch of, like, she could either have stability or an adventure. And in this case, she's chosen adventure. I wanted to ask, after this movie rolls, do they stay together? And how long? 
I don't think they do. I mean, I am a person who... I love movies about uh, situational romance. And I feel like Sugar and Joe, that's a situational romance. Yes. It's going to wear off. She's going to be like, okay, this was fun. This but, is just you another know, we, we have adventure. no money. Exactly. Because <laughs> yeah. his skills yeah. are not anywhere better than they were in the original. And no, no. I don't... I, She's Marilyn Monroe, and she's enchanting, but again, I don't know if that would convince him to get his shit together. Now, the second question, which brings us to, like, the official ending shot, which is so fucking funny to me. He's like, I'm sorry, I can't marry you. Why? I smoke. I don't care. It's like, your mom will hate me. It's like, yeah, she'll get over it. And then it's like, I'm a man. And then he just stops and goes, eh, nobody's perfect. What do you think? <laughs> and- about the How do you think they're gonna... Do you think they last? You know, I... I see a future for Jerry where he's he's just a kept woman and he's okay with that. I can see that. I can see him accepting that and being like, fine, I'll take your money. If you're fine with it, I'll take your money. We can, we can be a pair. I don't know. I mean, I... That seems like it would have more longevity potentially yes, I think than so. Joe and Sugar. <laughs> I don't know. There's something like, again, maybe it's like this weirdly progressive ending where it's, I I don't know how progressive because it's sort of like the nobody's perfect, meaning that like a dude dressed up as a woman isn't like the ideal situation for him and which is that can be problematic Mm -hmm. under today's terms and Mm -hmm. and whatever. But also that's just Mm -hmm. embracing of like, I've had so much fun with you, this person, that I don't really mm-hmm. care what the parts are. Mm-hmm. I don't really care what the look yeah. is. I'm just enjoying yeah. our time together, which is, you know, mm-hmm. it's romantic in its own yeah. way. <laughs> so that uh, do you know that Billy Wilder on his headstone has that quote? It's it's partially it's partial, but it says Billy Wilder, and he says, and it says. Um, I was a writer, but nobody's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's uh, <laughs> oh, beautiful. Yeah. But it's it's just that line that ends the film, and that's a top ten most famous, most perfect perfect film endings for me. It's, it's like, this is the excellent. beginning of a beautiful friendship, or, you know. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's that level. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, what do you like? What do you think about Billy Wilder, by the way, just like as a director? in general is this the is this your favorite of his um mate i have a couple favorites of billy wilder i obviously love some like it hot i really love the apartment um another jack lemon starring vehicle um and i also uh, really love a foreign affair um that one is very good i haven't haven't heard (laughs) Um, of that one yeah that one's one of his less famous ones um but still it's still well regarded it's not one of his ones that people don't like yeah. it's just not as famous as the apartment or something like it hot um but i i mean i guess i'm basic i guess i would have to say it's a tie between some like it hot and the apartment i mean you could definitely <laughs> do a lot worse than those two movies right there yeah. so yeah i get you yeah all right we're gonna move on to the one that you gave me like an explicit warning about I did. <laughs> so on her DM, she sent me all of this, and then she goes to like, "Hey, by the way, this movie, there's like people that don't like it, and this could be kind of challenging. So I apologize in advance." 
To which I'm like, look, I'm here for anything. Like, this is in four <laughs> films. This is about Leah. We're going to find out about Leah on here. And I don't think that I've understood Leah more than the next two movies we're going to talk about. Because this <laughs> one is 1776. When a king becomes a tyrant, he thereby breaks the contract binding his subjects to him. How so? By taking away their rights. Rights that came from him in the first place? All except one. The right to be free comes from nature. John, really? You talk as if independence were the rule. It's never been done before. No colony has ever broken from the parent stem in the history of the world. John, but Franklin, you make a sound treasonous. Do I? Treason, eh? Treason is a charge invented by winners as an excuse for hanging the losers. I can't say I'm very fond of the United States of America as a name for a new country. Oh. <laughs> or it was high, 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 diddle, diddle, twixt oh. my father and, and never twill be. You took the two, like, horniest groups in existence, history geeks and theater <laughs> nerds, and you put yes. them together and had them make a movie. And I say horny yes. because I'm pretty sure there's an entire song in here dedicated to how Thomas Jefferson's wife appreciates his head game. Yes, yes. It is called He Plays the Violin, and it's a song-length double entendre about Thomas Jefferson's prowess in bed, probably the way you just described. I'm, I'm yes. pretty... Because I was like... <laughs> What, he he swings the bow. I'm like, what is his bow? Is the bow his penis? Or is the bow... I'm like, no, 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 because she mentioned he rests the violin on his chin. So I'm assuming he's just going mm-hmm. down to town and, like, eating a watermelon, you know, mm-hmm. like, full-blown, mm-hmm. just ready to roll mm-hmm. on it. And mm-hmm. by the way, Thomas mm-hmm. Jefferson can fucking get it. Oh, my God. Yes, he, <laughs> he He's played in this film by... Um, Ken Howard, who is a very, very handsome man. Yes. <laughs> also, the one thing you didn't tell me is that uh, John Adams is played by Mr. Fucking Feeney. Yes. So, 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 1776 is the only, it is technically a holiday film because I watch it every year on the 4th of <laughs> awesome. July. Awesome. Um, but I included it. I didn't, uh, I didn't discount it because it's a holiday film because, A, because I genuinely, I'm kind of obsessed with this film and B because it's one that it's I don't know a little I don't know I just wanted to talk about it I I think about I'm obsessed with this film (laughs) but yes when I think of William Daniels I think of John Adams this is the first thing I saw him in I think it's a tremendous performance I think he's fantastic as John Adams Um, but yes he so to me William Daniels is John Adams, but he is also Mr. Feeney. He's also the voice of Kit in Knight Rider. And he's also Dustin Hoffman's dad in The Graduate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I He is so good in this film. I think about the way he says, incredible, <laughs> daily. I, I, wish, I wish I had a video clip of that that I could use as like a reaction video on, on Twitter and social media. Incredible. <laughs> so, I... I check the, what is it, how long each movie is. I'm like, it's two hours and 45 minutes. It's a musical. That's why I, that's why I apologized. This film is so, it's way too long. It is so long. And I'm sorry. Thank you for watching it. 
And I say all of this to say, this movie's my motherfucking jam. I fucking love this shit so goddamn much. This hit me right where I fucking live. It's like... Okay, how big of a fan of you are of uh, History of the World Part 1, Mel Brooks? I love it. Yes! <laughs> if you love History of the World Part 1, you're gonna love this shit because it takes the piss out of the revolution so beautifully. <laughs> it's If you're worried about the musical sequences, I'd say they're more just like, it's a movie that happens to have song numbers in it. Technically a musical, yeah. but it doesn't take over the whole thing. And and there's no dancing. I mean... There's no dancing to be I had. I mean, <laughs> there is, if you want to dance about slavery. Dancing. Dan- they do, like, they... Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's be real, though. Whenever Ben Franklin, played by Howard DeSilva, by the way, in the most, like... I feel like if this were made in the 90s, it'd be like Paul Sorvino playing Ben Franklin for some reason. I can't explain why I get that vibe. But they're doing a waltz with Thomas Jefferson's wife in the in the garden. And I'm like, oh, this is a great little waltz. And then the douchebags in Congress who are just the South, minus uh, Richard Henry Lee, literally uh, just dance around in these like colorful ass outfits. And it's just... Oh, this was so delightful. It's again, it's horny as shit. It takes a side. So it takes these really cool surreal asides. Whenever John Adams is like trying to talk to his uh, his wife, but his wife's obviously in Boston. He's in Philadelphia trying to get the independence declared. You know, uh, for those of you who don't know, 1776 it starts. I want to say like June, May of. Uh, 1776 and it's John Adams played by Mr. Feeney William Daniels trying desperately to get the rest of the delegates to agree to declare independence against Great Britain and uh, he's completely alone so he has these surreal like moments when he's talking to his wife and like his wife shows up in his imagination I'm assuming they're talking in their house outside of Boston in one scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's there it's supposed to represent their letters, of course, right. their famous letters John Adams and Abigail Adams. And so I think her scene the scenes um kind of on the in that look like they're on a farm or in the yeah, country, yeah. I believe is supposed to be um yes, John Adams home in Massachusetts. Okay. Yeah. So they'll have like these surreal little bits and then they'll have these random comedy breaks where uh one of my favorite breaks in the movie and it's this this is a musical in a play right originally yes so it was a broadway musical um that was on broadway in 1969 so it was a pretty quick turnaround yeah. for the film adaptation and uh yes so it was on broadway it was successful on broadway the film was not so <laughs> successful but the stage show was a hit yeah. <laughs> so when you watch um uh, movie adaptations and musicals in Broadway, you always kind of are aware of the sort of like theatrical influence of it all. There's a more, uh, there's like a boxed in feeling to the location and the cinematography. But something I love in this is like, they'll have a gag where they're bored as hell in Congress. One guy stands on a ledge, looks outside the window and he goes, ooh, fire wagon. And it cuts and they all run out of there. And just the emo- the energy and emotion behind it opened up the scale of this movie so much. They jump in different locations. They go to different houses. They go like, I think to General Washington in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Like there's so much that they do 
and it's shot with such exuberance and energy that you start to forget that it's a play. One of my favorite things is like they run out. It's like ooh, fire wagon. I'm like, did are they trying to chase after like a hose to see if they can get like yeah. cold water or whatever? No, I guess that's the entertainment. They just want to go see the fire get put out. They, they just want to see like <laughs> my favorite bit is like they're looking at it and just going, "What's burning?" I'm like, "That house is too new to be burning. Maybe it's the tavern." We don't joke about the dad, boy. <laughs> You'll fuck with the tavern. <laughs> don't come for the tavern. McNair, get yeah. me a rum. <laughs> I know. I love all of the personalities of the delegates. And they each kind of get their own yes. moment, too, um, which I love. And it's interesting, you know, that you mentioned the sort of stage origins of this show, of this movie, because my favorite parts of the film are actually the most stagey parts. I love the parts when they're just in Independence Hall and they are debating, right? right. But, you know, there are these extended sequences where all of the characters are just debating independence and it's riveting to me. I Like, I think it, I just I'm in it, you know, and I I love particularly uh, there are a couple kind of uh, debates between John Adams and um, John Dickinson of Pennsylvania. God, what a bitch. And, uh, I can't yeah, I know. fucking stand this guy. <laughs> great, great actor. I'm going to give him his props, but you keep I, going. I, I love it when they're, ha- they're having this fight, Adams and Dickinson, and, and you know, it's it's just words at first, and then they start yelling, and then at one point they start hitting each other with their Yo, canes. Yo, that was and, flames. That was so much fun. And John Adams... <laughs> My another another excellent line read of William Daniels is when uh, Adams calls Dickinson a, he calls him a landlord <laughs> as an insult. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> what what, what did he, didn't he call him a fribble at will? A fribble. What the yeah, fuck is a fribble? A fribble? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It must be an 18th century insult. <laughs> From what I hear, this movie is actually pretty damn historically accurate. Yes. So it. That's one of the things that I actually appreciate a lot about oh, this movie. Oh, uh, Donald Madden nerd. playing John Dickinson, the perfect asshole. Yes. yes, and I believe he was one of the actors who did not originate that role on Broadway. Oh, wow. and most of the other leads in this film were the actors who played them on Broadway, but um, the actor who played Dickinson was new for the film. Um, which is interesting because he's so good. He's so good. He as really Dickinson. like makes it his own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, this, what's, one of the things that is so interesting to me about this musical and this film is, of course, the bicentennial timing, right? So this, this show was kind of written at a time when America was really thinking about the bicentennial coming up in 1976. They were really thinking about mythologizing American history and what is, you know, what are the things that we're going to... Um, what are the things that are kind of foundational to American history in like a pop culture kind of sense, right? right? And so what's so interesting to me about this musical is, first of all, it it was written with attention to historical detail. So it is fairly accurate. I mean, there are things that are that are fudged, of course, because it's historical fiction, but there was a lot of research that went into the script. And the other thing that I find so interesting is the is the decision to make John Adams the lead of this film because I think there is it's kind of changed I think over the last fifty years but 
John Adams is not the person that you would think, oh, he should be the lead about a musical about the Declaration of Independence. You'd think it would be Thomas Jefferson, right? Because he wrote the damn right. thing, you know? Or it would be, you know, Benjamin Franklin or, you know, one of the bigger right. names, right? And I love the decision to make John Adams the lead of this show because he is the character in the show who I think is the one whose values would align most closely with a liberal from 1969, right? right. <laughs> like, I think, okay. you know, he's he's the one who, because the, the writers of this show um, were, were liberals, um, and they were, they that was reflected in this show. And, um, I lost my train of thought. It's coming back. <laughs> yeah, so the, the writers of this musical, this musical were liberals, and that was reflected in the show. And I think this choice to make John Adams the lead of this, this musical is so interesting because he... I lost my train of thought again. You, you jumped no, in. No, <laughs> uh, well, so we opened the movie, and I knew this was going to be a banger. Because it's John Adams sitting up like at the his little loft where he hides out from the other ones just to take a breath, uh, next to the Liberty Bell. Guy calls him down. He's like, "Yeah, uh, we're voting on whether like the Rhode Island militia should have matching uniforms or not." And you just see the look in his eyes just like flare up because he knows that this is not something that would need like this is nothing that needs his attention. But damn it, these motherfuckers are so stupid. And so he goes into this five-minute sing-along about how goddamn useless Congress is. He's like, what is it? One. He's like, when one man is useless, it's a disgrace. When two men are useless, it's something else. When multiple men are useless, it's a Congress. It's a Congress, I, yeah. And I and I love that it's set up from the beginning that it's John Adams versus everyone else. It's the 12 right? angry minification like, of the revolution. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, he has this idea. He's like, we need to declare independence. He sees the future so clearly, and he, he's fighting to get everyone else to come along with him. And it's interesting, he even sort of alienates his allies most of the time. Yeah. I mean, even his friends are like, you know, God damn it, John, sit down for like two <laughs> seconds. Um, and that's the refrain of this opening uh, song is, for God's sake, John, sit down. So you can kind of get the the feeling that everyone is so fed up with him. And it's, yeah, he, he is the one figure in this, in this show who does not want to compromise on anything. And I think he does end up compromising. And I think, you know, we can get into it as we, you know, get into what happens later in the film, maybe. But what's interesting to me is that in this show and in this film, and I think I've, I've felt this more as I've watched it recently, compromise in this show, it's what gets the Declaration of Independence passed, and it's what gets America founded, but it's not necessarily framed as something positive. I like that. You know, the biggest, the biggest compromise in this show is the biggest tragedy yes. that happens, right? It's the, it's the one time that John Adams compromises his morals... Um, and his convictions and he has kind of a crisis about it and he agrees to let it happen because he sees it as okay this is for the greater good 
you know, in his mind, but it's not really a victory, right? And I always find the end of this film so melancholy. Um, you know, it, it is sort of celebratory, like, oh, and then America was founded. Um, but it, it's always tinged with melancholy for me. And I think there's something that only happens because you have John Adams as the lead, right? Yeah. Um, and I think there's a way that the film can point out the hypocrisy of the founding fathers through John Adams, right? And I'm not saying that John Adams was like, uh, an, an unimpeachable figure because he wasn't um, and you know he, he lived in the 18th century I'm sure he had his, his shit you know? yeah. but you know his relationship with Abigail Adams even in real life was pretty um, equal and Abigail Adams is often cited as like a proto-feminist mm-hmm. and they had you know he treated her with lots of respect and, and she had a lot of influence on him and he respected her and her um, her mind and so there's that kind of, you know, almost that sort of almost feminist angle. And then John Adams was the John Adams and his son, John Quincy Adams, were the only two presidents, I think, of the first. It's at least until H.W. No, wait. Yeah. No, but no. they. Another one? No, they. Um, no, what I was saying is I think it's of the first 12 American Oh, right, presidents. right, right. The only two that didn't own slaves oh, okay, were sorry. John Adams and his son. Okay. And so, again, you know, there's evidence that while John Adams was in the White House, there was there were enslaved people who worked as staff there and stuff. So I'm not saying he's, like, yeah. morally pure or anything like that, or that he wasn't enmeshed in the systems of his time. But there's a way in which, because John Adams, even in his lifetime, was sort of um, against a lot of the things that we now recognize were... Um, were part of the, you know, were faults in the founding right. of the country. It's easier to kind of have him as the main character pointing out that hypocrisy. And it's really interesting to me <laughs> because at that time, you know, John Adams was not necessarily considered one of the founding fathers that everyone would be like, oh yeah, he was instrumental <laughs> in founding the country. And again, that's kind of changed. And I think, you know, broader historical trends, um, John Adams has been kind of re-evaluated or kind of re-appreciated um, as an instrumental founding father. And that that happened when all of his letters became uh where all of his letters were published um, in the 50s is when they started doing that. And then also as more and more came out about Thomas Jefferson, right? I mean, Thomas Jefferson was always kind of the center of this story of the Declaration of Independence and still is in many ways. But he was kind of like the founding father with a capital T right. for a long time. And then, you know, as as society changed and culture changed and people started kind of recontextualizing Thomas Jefferson and thinking about the complications of his legacy, um, you know, with regards to his owning slaves and his relationship with Sally Hemings and all of that. Um, as people were interested, as historians were kind of interested in complicating Thomas Jefferson's legacy and looking at him in a different way, then John Adams almost kind of stepped in as like, here's an alternative. I love that. In an that. interesting way. Especially um, <laughs> with those two guys, those dueling heads. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think, you know, uh, uh, McCullough had his biography of John Adams that came out, um, you know, like 
20 years ago and that was a huge hit and that was really big in that was a big part of kind of re um, recontextualizing John Adams in the public consciousness um, and then of course they made the 2008 miniseries uh, from that yeah. biography that starred Paul Giamatti and so it, I don't know I, I see 1776 as kind of like it was it was kind of part of the beginning of that wave. <laughs> yeah. It also helps that, uh, like you were saying, if this is a bicentennial-tinged movie and you're trying to figure out where you want America's values to lie, it's best to make the hero of your movie reflect those values. And so this is mm-hmm. very much at a pro, you know, racial equality. This is hugely... Uh, anti-slavery we are fully for independence we don't want to be is like we're not being owned by a fascist nation that kind of like all of that idealism is balled up in him uh i'm a west wing boy at heart like a big (laughs) lover of the west wing and of debates and of josh lyman and bradley whitford and i see so much of this John Adams performance in someone like Josh Lyman, who you could argue mm. outside of the president really is the main dude in the West Wing just because of like his how fiery he is and how much he needs to come from. And so I guess because I love that show so much, it's cool watching John Adams basically play that character in a two hour and 45 minute musical where he's yeah. like, he says it best. I'm obnoxious and disliked. So I'm going to go behind <laughs> the scenes and like get people like Richard Henry Lee to like yes. bring up the Virginian resolution or he's going to go and drag Brent Franklin into this and he's going to I love the moment when they're arguing about who's going to write the declaration because I it's love that song so, for one fantastic harmonies I love what they're doing with the framing on the stairs just like taking a really small location and really expanding it to the breadth of its ability but i love that it's not about the idea that's going to be put in the document it's about who's writing it and how and that's what ultimately mm-hmm. leads them to weed each other out until they get to jefferson uh yeah i also love there's a little horny line in that song too <laughs> like, of course there is. When, when adams gets to say you know um that he still romps through cupid's grove cupid's garden with agility. he's like i am yeah. 41 with great virility and i was like ah that's a yeah, good line and i still romp through cupid's through cupid's grove with great agility. i love that shit <laughs> I know. And and I think that that's yeah, I mean what's so what I love about this movie is that it's it that the, there is sort of this serious purpose to it, but it's so funny and it's so horny and it's so <laughs> silly. I mean, it totally humanizes the founding fathers and I think there's it works it works in two ways. It works to make the show kind of more interesting and funny right. and lighthearted, but it also, as you said, takes the piss out of them. You know, <laughs> like you can read it two ways. You can read it as like, um, yeah, you can definitely read it as being a little um, satirical. Yeah. A little bit. Particularly yeah. particularly with Ben Franklin. <laughs> I I love this character so much because of everything I've heard of Ben Franklin. It's basically this guy. My favorite joke in the entire movie is that Ben Franklin has passed out yet again because he's tired and just a grumpy old man. And they're starting the committee to go to New Jersey, which has been rumored uh, via George Washington's letters as a place where, like, 
every whore in New Jersey has come out like Mexican food trucks to hang out with every soldier and get all the money out of them. They're completely undisciplined. And so John Adams is like, all right. If Maryland, if Maryland sees that this is just an exaggeration, that the military is really good, will you support us? And he's like, yeah, sure. He's like, all right, I'm going to start a committee with me, the guy from Maryland, and Ben Franklin. And it's like, all right, Ben, wake up. He's like, where are we going? New Jersey. Why would you go there? Apparently for the whoring and the drinking. And he just rises from the grave like Shaq meme and <laughs> fucking takes he off. Does. He does. He does. He's so so great. Uh, that is that is also one of my favorite jokes. The whoring and the drinking. Oh, and he <laughs> also uh, what what is it? It's uh, they're talking about like Thomas Jefferson and how he's boning his wife all the time, and Ben Franklin's mm. like, yeah, at my age, the pen is definitely mightier than the sword. That shit's so fucking <laughs> I, funny to me. I I also love there there are two things when uh, Ben Franklin and John Adams are waiting outside the outside of Jefferson's door like is he still fucking is he coming down and, um, and so there's there's one part where John Adams is like scandalized because he's like are they it's during the middle of the day like are they in the afternoon and Ben Franklin goes not everyone's from Boston <laughs> he's, he's so, so sassy like, I I, he's just like you're such a prude go to Paris get over it <laughs> and then it's like okay we're just gonna leave them alone Johnny's like oh uh well, yeah. have you eaten yet are you hungry he goes yeah but I mean I've got a rendezvous man like I've got a girl to hook up with like come on man go shoot yeah yeah and then there's another part um where uh I think it's a different time they're waiting outside the door for Thomas they wait Jefferson. multiple times for Thomas Jefferson to stop <laughs> they fucking do. his wife they do which they I mean, Bly, Bly Danner, can you blame him? Oh, she's she is oh my god, gorgeous, wow. um, beautiful singing voice too. So, yes, yes, and there's a, it's there. Adams and 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 Franklin are, are talking about how history will remember them, and Adams is already he's kind of saying that no one will remember me, and you know when you read about the history of the revolution in the textbooks, it'll be Ben Franklin took his famous lightning rod and, rod and he struck the ground and out sprang George Washington on his horse and they together they won the revolution. Yeah. <laughs> it cracks me up the way he says it. I love the time. way he says that too. He like deifies him like a Greek god. It is just so funny yeah. to me the way this comes yeah, across. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you feel about... Uh, whenever the movie gets like darker like there's this one bit when the all the delegates the main delegates of the movie have basically left and it's mcnair the rum getter who's really supposed to be there to like be custodian of everybody but he's the rum getter that's him and it's the i don't know the i don't remember the other guy but it's the dude uh who's been delivering the mail from uh, george washington's of the mm-hmm. war mm-hmm. And he starts talking about how, like, he's watched his friends die in front of him. And he gets really sober for a second. Like, mm-hmm. what do you feel about mm-hmm. that sequence in the middle of this kind of romp? Yeah, I mean, that is a number. I'm glad you asked about it because it's something that I've changed my mind on. Mm. When I was younger, I used to hate that song. I was really? Like, it stops everything. It's in the middle of whatever. And I didn't like it. And I thought the special effects were cheesy. I just didn't like it when I was younger. 
And now I really appreciate that song. And I appreciate it also in context because it's very clearly when you think about when this musical was written, it's very clearly kind of an anti-war, anti-Vietnam song. I mean, it's in response to the Vietnam War that was going on in 69 when this was written. And it's I find it much more affecting and moving now than I did when I was younger. Um, It's one that I've kind of I've definitely come around on. And I think it's the only part of the film that I've really like switched my opinion of so drastically. Um, yeah. Now it like gets me. Now I cry when I watch yeah. it. <laughs> I always, yeah. I always thought that part was really good because there is a portion in the movie where like really the jokes stop and it's whenever, yeah, whenever shit third, gets really... serious when they have to yeah, yeah. vote on this and uh, those are one of the scenes where it gets heavy. We're like, oh yeah, you really like. There are folks who are dying because of this squabble, mm-hmm. and y'all are just dicking around. Like you don't give them ammunition because they'd have no power to give ammunition and whatnot. There is no like even what is it? Even the Articles of Confederation are not like. I think they're built around this time, but there's no like constitution, not even thought of. To, there's no power in Congress. Hell, not even for the next, I guess, like, 50 years would Congress really start to gain a foothold in, like, uh, federal power. So it's just, I don't know, it really brings home the urgency and the stakes of the moment. Whereas in the first half, you can get away with, like, oh, look at how stupid bureaucrats are and whatever. This time it's like, Mm -hmm. all right, you got to get your shit together. Yeah. And I think that the final part of the film where shit gets serious I really enjoy that final part of the film and the number, the musical number that I've always uh, found to be the most powerful is Molasses to Rum. Oh man. And that is the one where it's the <sighs> senator, it's the rep, the, um, not senator. It's, uh, <laughs> the, it's uh, the representative. Colonel Rutledge from South Carolina. Yeah. yeah. The, re- the representative from South Carolina, he's played by Edward Cullum and he has a voice yeah. and a half. Yeah. This man, this, this command, this commands the entire scene for a solid like five minutes. And yes, and this this number comes while um, the declaration has been read, and now all of the delegates—that's the word I was looking for—all of the hey. delegates are are making suggestions and amendments, and they're saying, "Yeah, if we're gonna sign it, you've got to change this, this, and this." So, um, Mr. South Carolina <laughs> Rutledge. He's like, you know, he basically says in so many words, he's like, well, you know, you've condemned slavery in this document and the South, we're not going to sign it unless you get rid of that sentence. We're not going to sign it. And um, Adams is against this. He's like, no, we have to have this in here. Like, you know, when we create our nation, like, you know, we're not going to have slaves. Everyone's going to be free. And all the delegates in the South are like, whatever. And it's one of those performances where like you as a human being in 2023 watching it start getting really upset. Like they're playing this way too committed. Yes. And so, so Rutledge basically calls Adams a hypocrite. And he, the way that I've, that I've started to understand this song is a spectacular bit of both sidesing. Because what he says is he's like, you in the North, you're just as complicit as us in the South. And so if you want to, you know, if you want to act like you're more moral than we are because you don't own slaves, fine, whatever, but you're making money off of it. The ships, 
you know, come into northern ports as northern captains who go, you know, to Africa and bring the, the human cargo back. And so he, he, Rutledge launches into this song. It's called Molasses to Rum, and it's about the triangle trade. And it's so upsetting. <laughs> it is so upsetting. It gets really uncomfortable. Like, there's one point where mm-hmm. I think he's making, like, fake African noises, and I'm sitting there just like... And he's acting out a, he's acting out a slave auction. Yeah. Is what he's doing. And it's really interesting because in... Um, in within the song there's one of the northern delegates who who basically says like stop like, <laughs> i don't remember exactly yeah he's says. like dude quit says, like this is not yeah. for god's sake no yeah. yeah yeah he's like enough <laughs> you know this is too much i think you know for god's sake mr rutledge that's what yeah. he says he's like stop um it's it's intense yeah uh, but in that scene, it, it really is sort of the heartbreak of the movie that, like, the ultimate compromise really is. And I guess that's why you have John Adams be the lead. That's why you have John Adams have this... Uh... When you mentioned, like, a liberal from 1969, I was thinking, like, I guess so, because, like, if you're talking about, like, something like civil rights, where, like, mm-hmm. as much as you want to go gung-ho, like... And it's not even that uh, you can't live with them, can't live without them type of thing. It's more that like, look, if this is going to stand a chance to work, everybody has to be united. And again, West Wing, I'm reminded of President Bartlett. It's one of my favorite quotes of anything I've ever heard is that change comes in excruciating increments. That word excruciating, even extending the word excruciating gets you to feel how tough it is. And it's really the most bitter bitter moment of the movie where, like, it's not even... And I love that this choice is made, by the way, by Jefferson, that John isn't the one who actually says, yeah, sure, take it out. Jefferson does it for him because John Mm -hmm. can't bring himself to do that shit. And Mm -hmm. even as the declaration is signed and there's some levity that's come back into the Congress, there's still this sort of like solemn, oh yeah, we're still not going to deal with the question of slavery for another hundred years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's interesting because like I said, I think it's really key to this film's um, characterization of compromise as as a, as foundational to the United States and, and U.S. politics, but in a very in a negative way, right? Like yeah. like we made this big compromise at the beginning, and and we've been you know dealing with the consequences of that ever since. And it's it's so it's so different from other sort of mythologized right. versions of of the founding, um, and it's it's something that I think strikes me really strongly recently you know especially you know with lots of you know a lot of a lot of murders um, politicians murders by cops (laughs) yeah yeah. black people yeah well i was just gonna say when a lot of politicians especially democrats are calling for you know for unity and compromise and being, you know, moderate and trying to, you know, include as many people as possible yep. and get people from the other side to, you know, come to the middle. Mm-hmm. When that's kind of the been sort of the party line and it's not working, nope. it's so interesting to me to kind of have to to come to this sort of, you know, 
fictionalized version of the founding of America and not have compromise be one of these like foundational positive pillars of American politics. It's like, no, this shit was bad in 1776. And I mean, <laughs> I, you know, for you know for a fact, they make a movie called 2020 made in, I don't know, like hell i'd even say like 2052 technology is moving way too fast for this that like you do 2020 <laughs> you have somebody be a trumpy in that it's going to be mm-hmm. looked in the same regard like the mm-hmm. fact that y'all mm-hmm. are compromising not for states rights not mm-hmm. for you know agrarian like economical purposes but really villainous people morally bankrupt mm-hmm. people you're towing the line and compromising with these fucks. These are the mm-hmm. people you've lied in bed with. That's how just angry this particular part of the movie and John Adams is. And mm-hmm. if y'all don't see the parallels between this and now, trust me, like you're compromising with some dangerous fucking people. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, people saw the parallels in 1972 when this film came out there was a certain number um it was the calm cool considerate men number do you remember yes. that one yes that was funny so, as shit, by the way yes so nixon was president at the time and he ordered that number be cut really from the movie on some yes. like chinese so, censorship shit yes wow and he ordered so he ordered that that number be cut and the film destroyed luckily um someone who was you know in the cutting room at the time did save it like they cut it from the film the theatrical version came out without the number but the footage wasn't destroyed and so now the only version that you can get is the it's called the director's cut and it's just has the restored calm cool considerate men number but until the dvd uh version of this film came out you know in the aughts you could you got it on vhs and it didn't have calm cool considerate men on it it wasn't that was only restored later and it was at the behest the direct behest of president nixon (laughs) i'm not i'm not surprised it's almost like you're almost getting to the point like you know what the point is and yet you've chosen the exact wrong thing to do with said point (laughs) yeah yeah exactly yeah and it's uh it's a, a a number that's that's very clearly critical of conservative politics and politicians and the the um the lyrics go you know to the right ever to the right never to the left ever to the right and it's about you know these these wealthy landowners protecting their own their own interests basically um and it is a critical number of of conservative politicians and yeah and nixon got it he was like nope i don't like that that makes me feel bad (laughs) that makes me feel bad but i'm not going to change what i'm doing so Yeah. If I ignore the problem, it will go away. Yes, exactly. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, seventeen seventy six. It's when did you watch this for the? First? How did this come into your purview? <laughs> so I, my mom, we watched it. My family watched it on the Fourth of July every year. So we had it on VHS. So I first saw this movie without "Calm, Cool, Considerate Men" in it. Okay. The VHS version did not have that. Um, and so I think I watched this movie for the first time when I was maybe like eight or nine. My mom waited till I was long, you know, old enough to sit through a movie that long. And I loved it. I loved it from the first time I watched it. I don't know why a nine year old liked this movie, but I, I did. I was, I was into it. Um, and 
yeah I've I've I yeah it was just a holiday tradition that's how are I you uh are you a time. history buff by trade like an American history kid um not particularly American history but I do love history I am a history buff um and uh so yeah I'm sure that was part of it <laughs> yeah but my dad reads a lot of history and so when I after I got like really into this movie he did give me like real history books to read about American history (laughs) which I enjoyed because I was a little nerd (laughs) I'm still a little nerd (laughs) all right so speaking of little nerd uh because I figured like the theater kid you got a little theater kid in you you have to have a little theater I do like a musical theater kid yeah (laughs) Yeah, what gave me away? (laughs) Was it the fact that I picked this movie? Yes. Yes, it was. (laughs) Yes, yes, I am a former theater kid. (laughs) What did you, uh, what did you play in? Like, what did you do in, was it in school? Yeah, it was in high school. I did, um, I was mostly in the chorus. I was not one of the stars. (laughs) But I did, I did, I was in the chorus and You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, we did Urine Town one year, and we did Kiss Me Kate one year, um, and then I had speaking roles in like the straight plays. We did a we did a Neil Simon one nice. one year called God's called God's Favorite, and it was sort of like a retelling of um, of the story of Job, but it's like it was these two you know rich New Yorkers in the seventies, I think is when it's set. Okay, <laughs> so. I got the role because in the audition, I just went straight for the New York accent. She was like, all right. <laughs> so, nice. There's a line. There was a line where uh, the angel in this show looks like Robert Redford. It's like a, a joke, a very 70s joke. Um, and so there was one point where, where I would say, I had to say I was the wife and I played against the guy that was playing my husband. And he says something about the, you know, the angel and I, you know, looking like Robert Redford and my character said something about, you know, you talk to Robert Redford. And so every time I see anything about Robert Redford, I just say it like Robert Redford. <laughs> that's, how I said it. that's how I said it in the play. I love it. All right. So speaking of nerds in New York, uh, the other movie that I assume gets you perfectly is 1998's You've Got Mail. I turn on my computer. I go online. Welcome. Welcome. And my breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. What is going on with you? Is it infidelity if you're involved with someone on email? This woman is the most adorable creature I've ever been in contact with. Have you had sex? Of course not. I don't even know her. Mm, I mean cyber sex. No. Well, don't do it. The minute you do, they lose all respect for you. In a city where everyone's looking for someone, Joe and Kathleen have discovered the best way to meet someone <gasps> Hi. is to never meet at all. We just email. It's really nothing. I don't know his name or what he does. Look, 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 look. Or where he lives exactly. What? He couldn't possibly be the rooftop killer. What they don't realize. What is that? What are you doing? You're taking all the caviar? That caviar is a garnish. Is they already have. Joe Fox, I'm in the book business. I am in the book business. What should I have said to a man who has made my professional life a misery? Tell me something, really. How do you sleep at night? Fight. Fight to the death. In life, they're at odds. She's beautiful, but she's a pill. Online, 
they're in love. Do you think we should meet? Meet? Oh my God. I'm gonna say hello, I'm gonna have a cup of coffee, and then I'm gonna split. That's what I'm gonna do. Why am I even doing this? Why am I compelled to even meet her? Relax. Just taking it to the next level. Huh. And I'm not gonna stay that long anyway. I already said that, didn't I? Yes, you did. No. He could be the next person to walk into the store. He could be. May I please come up? No, I don't really think that that is a good idea because I have a terrible cold. Were you born in New York? I was not. No, I grew up. I've lived all over, but I spent most of my childhood outside of Denver. I am a West Coast girl, but I did. Um, I lived in New York City for a couple years. I went to, um, I got my graduate degree there. Um, so that's where I was before I moved to Seattle. And I love New York. <laughs> but I'm not a native. I can't claim that. <laughs> so tell me about New York. What is it about it that like, because I'm assuming you're just fascinated with it. Because the characters here are fascinated with it. I can't, yeah. I can't help but think so. Yeah. Um, what I love about... One of the things I love about New York is you always feel like you're in the center of everything. Like, you feel like you're in the center of the world. <laughs> and there's always something happening. And, you know, the main thing that I, I really loved about living there... And I think you get this in any sort of major city, but there just aren't that many big metropolitan cities like this in the United States is I love the density of people. There are always people around you. There's always someone to watch. There's always something happening. There's always, you're never alone, right? And it's like, there's this feeling of just, this feeling of humanity. And it sounds so cheesy to put it that way. But like, that is what New York feels like at its best. You're just surrounded by people and you see the best and the worst of them. Um, but but when it's the best, there's nothing like it. <laughs> so like, you're... You're really somebody who like thrives on community. Yeah, and and it's not even that I have to know the people. It's just like being alone in a crowd is a certain feeling. Right. You know, like you don't really feel truly alone. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so what makes you love uh, You've Got Mail? So You've Got Mail is another film that I watched when I was pretty young. I would say it's it was one of the first movies that like wasn't a kid's movie that I remember watching. And um, and I, I loved it from the get-go. It's so it's so funny. And, and as a kid, and as a kid, I thought it was so adult and sophisticated. Too. I was like, Ooh, this isn't a film for adults. <laughs> um, and uh, I love, well, I have to show you my earrings. They say, let's be enemies to lovers. Oh, and here we go. I was about to ask that. <laughs> I was about to ask yes. that. Enemies to lovers is one of my favorite kinds of romances and I blame Pride and Prejudice and You've Got Mail. Those are the two foundational enemies to lovers romances for me. Um, and I, so I love that about You've Got Mail. I mean, a lot people like to call it problematic now because, you know, of the business capitalism angle. Um, but, you know, I love the chemistry between Tom Hanks as Joe Fox and, um, Meg Ryan's Kathleen Kelly. I love that. I just love the crackling hatred that like is clearly <laughs> just thinly veiled sexual tension. I love it. <laughs> 
they and they have really great chemistry in this film. I mean, Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks are a, a classic pair for a reason, and I think this is my favorite of the ones that they've done together. Uh, so I. Funny, this is the second Meg Ryan movie in a row we've done on In Four Films because we did when Harry Met Sally. And I think I remember. No, wait. This is the third because we did Anastasia with Nicole. Oh, that is Meg Ryan. Yeah, that with is Nicole. Meg Ryan. And I'm actually bringing that up later in this episode. But then we did Anastasia with Nicole. We did When Harry Met Sally with Amanda. And now we're doing uh, You've Got Mail with You. Uh, <laughs> You're on a Meg Ryan I really role. <laughs> am. Whoever I pick next has to pick. I don't I don't know what other Meg Ryan things are out there, but like we'll do all of them. We'll do an entire Meg Ryan <laughs> retrospective on this show. I don't give a shit. I fell in love with that woman after When Harry Met Sally because I'd been sitting on that for a oh, while. Yeah. And I genuinely believe there's nobody that's looked at better in a movie ever than Meg Ryan. And she just has this like, she has this like curling her upper lip type of grin that just like warms your heart. And it feels like, yeah. it feels like how a cookie out of the oven smells. I can't explain it, but it's how it feels to me. And, uh, Watching this was just a simple delight. I mean, on the first... Uh, the intro to this is, like, it's Meg Ryan. She's adorable. She's lovely and just so much fun to watch on screen. And then you got Tom Hanks, who is, like, America's dad. But in this one, he's still got, like, that weirdo kind of, like, the every man you want to be. Like the guy who comes up with the sly comments when you need it but is not so full of himself that you can't really fall in love with him and like get into his insecurities or what not it's like tom hanks at the height of his powers really so that's the warm part around this and then the rest of it i guess aesthetically you know when you watch a movie and it opens with like shots of a city and it's supposed to introduce you to where you are and to me that's kind of like the cinematic sign of like oh Daniel's brain can check out because nothing in this is gonna like matter you know like right. outside of mm -hmm. something like oh shit it's a movie where the Twin Towers is still there whoa okay and then you're done this movie starts out with computer graphics skyline circa 1998 Yes. And that immediately sucked me in. I was like, this is the type yeah. of movie we're going for. I know this period in time. I'm imagining that particular shade of off-white that you get from a Dell PC. Like, that chunky... And it's such an early internet film, right? Because Kathleen and Joe meet in a chat room. And so, you know, that's how they don't, you know, they don't know who each other yes. are because they're talking anonymously online. And just the idea of a chat room is so quaint anymore, I guess. I, I love that she calls it like, they talk about chat rooms as if you're going to a bar. Because she's like, oh, yeah, for a joke, I went into the over 30 chat room. And so if you close your eyes yeah. and you imagine, like, Meg Ryan, digital character, walking around and, like, oh, over 30 chat room, walks in and meets Guy. And that's how it works. And it's mm -hmm. not like this endless barrage of search algorithmized information that you can't process. Mm -hmm. There's something really quaint mm -hmm. about it. Also, that is the fastest mm -hmm. fucking dial-up speed I've ever seen in a goddamn <laughs> life. That is a fucking lie. <laughs> It took minutes to load a picture, let alone a full-on program. Mm -hmm. Fucking mm -hmm. dial in, kids. 
You remember when you had to tell a motherfucker to get off the phone so you could use the internet? Because I do. You remember floppy disks? Not the hard ones, but the ones that were actually fucking floppy. I remember that shit. Old man yells yeah, angrily is... at Cloud. <laughs> no, this is, there is something so, like, nostalgic about the internet culture that's presented in this film. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and and it's it's also very again kind of like quaint in the way that it 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 suggests that like you can find real connection online, you know? I mean <laughs> I feel like that's something that a lot of people are very cynical about in today's day and age. <laughs> Actually, what I found with this one is uh not necessarily c- I think it's less cynical now, actually. And I think I really do. Because, like, my wife and I met online. Like, and Mm -hmm. I got married to this lady that I met online. And I think now, especially with this, uh, one of the things the algorithm has done, essentially, these algorithms have found you to more and more like-minded people like yourself. And so there are real connections that form on Twitter. Like, I know people that I've met on Twitter and will hold these relationships forever. Like, there are some people that I meet on Twitter that I met in real life, and I was like, whoa, like, these people are really cool people in real life. And I think what I like about this movie is just the... It understands the nature of, like, the online persona, the way that the anonymity behind a keyboard lets you really express things that you would never dare say out loud. It allows you to be vulnerable in a way that you wouldn't give yourself the permission to express out loud. And so I think Efron is super smart when she's placing these conversations, especially, like... Because, I mean, at the beginning of the movie, they'll have conversations about nothing. It's very Seinfeld of them, which is also a very <laughs> 1998 observation from yours truly. But uh, they'll talk <laughs> about, like, bullshit and nothing. And I think Efron wisely puts in these moments where, like, Joe has gone on a bender and been a real dick to Kathleen and then finally just lets loose in this thing. And he's able to kind of journal right to her, like, I really... It's like, do you ever feel like you've become the worst version of yourself? And it very much feels, in that kind of email, that chat, like, I don't even think most people, I mean, people would do that on Twitter, and it seems like attention-seeking now. But the way mm-hmm. Efron frames it, and the way that Tom Hanks performs it, I mean, you couldn't get these performances out of people that weren't both great actors and great voice actors. Because the yes, voice yes, sells part it. of it is when they're reading the emails. Yeah, I agree with you. I yeah. think the way that they read the emails is a huge part of, of the success of this film. Yeah, I agree with and you. And it helps yeah. make a movie that could easily, you know, a lot of the complaint about screen life movies is that, oh, we're just like reading this thing. Like, this isn't fun. We're watching a, a screen move we're reading the movie essentially for two hours mm-hmm. but the way Efron mm-hmm. frames it is that she'll intercut with different montages she'll put in like a bunch of like Harry I don't know what this guy is he kind of sounds like if Randy Newman and Harry Connick Jr. fucked and just like <laughs> left whatever was sitting to be like you know scooped up and reassembled later I don't know who this guy is but it sounds like that and it's funny because Randy Newman actually pl- starts singing a song in the movie afterwards I was making a joke I didn't think Randy Newman was gonna fucking show up but he did so that's what he happened did. 
But intercutting all of this stuff, and I love the back and forth between Hanks and Ryan as emails, literally, but the way their voices sound. And I guess that's why, like, Meg Ryan's voice just crackles. That's why she's so good in Anastasia as a voice actress, and that's why she's so good here. It's just like when she's voice acting and when she's actually acting off of Hanks and giving off that chemistry, I'm like, she's just stellar. The both of them are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I and I love the the vulnerability in both of their performances, like you mentioned. I mean, you have with Kathleen, she is running this, she's running her bookshop, the shop around the corner, which is a, a nod to the fact that this movie is sort of a, a remake of an older film called The Shop Around the Is Corner. it really? Um, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, except the romance in that is letters, not emails. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, it is a, it's a loose remake of The Shop Around the Corner. So that's where the name of her store comes from. Um, so she, you know, I think the vulnerability in her storyline comes from, you know, losing her business and, you know, dealing with feeling like if she loses her business, she's, you know, letting her mom down in the memory of her she's mom. She's losing her mom. Um, and she's losing her mom. And I, the scene, the final scene oh in the Oh my God. Is so beautiful and heartbreaking and and beautifully performed i mean meg ryan performs it to perfection but it, that scene gets me every time um it's, oh, it's just so like a little surreal <laughs> moment like as the shop's about to close down and i love by the way do you have this fascination because i noticed it in basically all the movies you sent me minus uh some like it hot there's this sort of warmth woody like you can almost smell the movie type of like mm-hmm. film stock you know there's this mm-hmm. tangibility to i guess your taste in film that yeah uh, i definitely yeah I, that's funny i've never really thought about it but you're right i do tend to gravitate toward films that have like a more of a warmer color palette yeah. that have sort of this sense of the sense of warmth yeah and yeah. Uh, the way they shoot uh these two because in the in the beginning of the movie tom hanks notices um i think he mentioned something about her mom and to not give away how he knows her mom he's like oh it's the picture behind you that's a great save mm-hmm. and then later they mm-hmm. actually show that scene when the bookstore is closing and then you know mama kelly's twirling kathleen around as a young child and there's mm-hmm. this sort of like really a uh, warm uh, not quite golden not quite white glow to them just the way the shadows play off in that scene it's really subtle cinematography work but it's the kind of work that you want to live in and i don't know it's the production design too of like there's something that i'm a sucker where like a bookcase is perfectly like straight on one end and then it slants out at the bottom a little triangle i don't know why it just it it gets me i like it ah it's so good yeah yeah it is and and uh yeah i mean i love the whole her whole bookshop and i love her co-workers oh are my god so funny <laughs> steve zahn and, and i love just what <laughs> well, and, and also and also birdie when <laughs> when uh, when um uh greg kinnear's character like puts it together he's like birdie dated, dated franco like what <laughs> like, it's like people do yeah, she, she's like people she's do stupid character. things in foreign countries 
Yeah, she's a character who has had four movies worth. Garen uh, fucking T. Like yes, the, the first absolutely. time you see her is like, what are you girls talking about? Oh, we're talking about cyber sex. Yeah, I tried cyber sex, but the connection wouldn't load. <laughs> it's like, damn, I feel that. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. She's great. I, I love her. Yeah, I mean, I I love the the characters, um, the coworkers in this in uh, the 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 bookstore, um, and I also. All of the side characters in this film are so great. Like, I love Joe Fox's dad, like, whatever his deal is. And and, the, and, his, and his wife that runs off with the nanny. I was like, go, good for I, you. I love the um, way that plays out, because for the whole movie, it looks like she's going to have a subplot where she's just, like, trying to fuck Tom Hanks, and he is just yeah. edibly horrified. Yeah, like, yeah. Terrified of this. And then, then right later, it's like, oh, they ran off with the nanny. He goes, that's what yeah. we'd like to call ironic. That's really the only word yes. for it. Yes, yes. And um, and I love, too, uh, his girlfriend, Parker Posey. Oh She's God. fantastic in this I... film. Her 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 scene in in the elevator when there she's freaking out in the elevator that's the crown jewel of her performance in this film <laughs> i uh yeah and yeah and the boyfriend too greg kinnear i feel like all of the side characters are so sharply drawn and funny and great in this film in addition to the central romance being so wonderful and you have to have something like that because you the way the tension plays on this you can't just have them doing like emails to each other or like half meat cutes like no you really have to have these two camps in which each of them belongs to and uh like the dad is just flippant as fuck about everything he's yes. just like oh is your girlfriend would would i like her like he's slightly <laughs> shitty but he's joking but you're not totally sure if he's joking he's yeah. just he's just here to fuck and have a good time and make money like that's really all his tom hanks's dad is there to do and hanks yeah. is really selling like that opening part where they're having the meeting about uh owning bookstores and like taking over their inventory hanks is being relatively shitty and it's just a, a i guess it's a i guess it's a testament to that guy's range is just he could be a real piece of shit yeah, and I think it's a testament to Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan's chemistry that I still root for them, even though like he literally his character literally puts her out of business <laughs> and he doesn't really care. And like I mean, he does personally grow the character yeah. throughout the film. You know, he he is I would say a less shitty person by the end than he is at the beginning. But like the fact remains, <laughs> he still put her out of business. And I love how he and, keeps bringing it up. Like he's trying to hit on her. He's like, yeah, I'm just the, I'm sorry. I mean, the guy that put you out of business, but I'm hoping you could forgive me. <laughs> and I was just like, it'd be a lot easier if you'd stop mentioning that you put her out of you'd business. Stop saying it. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I know. But like, it's a testament to their chemistry that like, I don't, care in the end i still want them to be together i still have you know i still melt every time when kathleen says i was hoping it was you <laughs> you I, know i was end. waiting with bated breath because i'm like the entire movie hinges on how she reacts to the fact that this guy who she's known online has essentially been stalking her since like hour in the movie and mm. so it's like how is she gonna react to this and she goes i I wanted it to be you, and I was like, I "Oh my god!" It's so. I was perfect. like, I, I was so like, <laughs> I think, I think also the thing that makes me less put off by that part of the plot that he puts her out of business 
is that the, written into her storyline is this idea that she is kind of stuck in the past, right? Yeah. That she is stuck kind of living her this life that her mom set out for her and she loves it but it's not it's nothing she's ever chosen for herself and um you know there's this sense that she you know for her she grows too through this experience and she kind of gets to a new a new place and 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 gets to to try you know being a book editor maybe or doing something else and um i don't know it doesn't it's it's so sad when the when the shop closes, but there's this sense of almost like renewal or possibility right. for her too by the end, and I think that's really underscored by the fact that I love the the um, the seasonal structure of this yes. film. Yes, oh in god, spring, I'm a sucker you know? for that. A good yeah, seasonal and it structure. ends in the spring. Yeah, yeah, and I think that 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 really fits with her with Kathleen's story, and it helps because the movie is really just about her getting self respect too. Like the whole point was not whether we're gonna keep the bookstore or not it's are we gonna just turn over and let it go or inspired by the enemy that eventually becomes her lover she finally stands up for herself and really goes on this crusade for what she goes to the mattresses goes to the mattresses (laughs) which is like i don't know what this movie has this like oh what is it with men and the godfather i'm like the godfather is pretty fucking good I know. <laughs> like, I thought that was weird. I was like, is this really, like, a men-women thing, The Godfather? Um, not in my experience, but I also like a lot of dudes' movies. Like, I love movies that are, like, movies Boy for movies. guys, so I don't know. Yeah, but I, exactly. <laughs> but I also think that's, like, a very 90s thing, you know, like, the battles of the sexes, yeah. men are from Mars, women are from Venus, yeah, you know, that, that kind of, of thing that was going on. <laughs> But yeah, I think everybody likes The Godfather. Yeah, The Godfather. I like The Godfather. It's pretty like, cool. Come on. It's yeah, like that one Family great. Guy clip. He's like, okay, I'm sorry. I had to confess. I don't like The Godfather. What? <laughs> it's like they're drowning, but they're like, wait, we're going to argue this. What the fuck? You don't like The Godfather? Yeah. <laughs> I also like that like what she's fighting for, and maybe this is just sadder in 2023 given like the more gentrification has taken over New York. But uh, there's a line that she mentions, which is really cool, which is like, you'd have some sort of cynical people say like, oh, this is just the way the city is, that it evolves, it like switches things out and it's never personal. But like, that it is personal for me. Like there's cruelty and sadness in that things that were really good, that brought people together that were you know good essentially for all of us are leaving and there's a real mourning for the past and so that in one instance is really good and then you juxtapose that against the first time she visits the bookstore on her own and there's this great like pan this really big shot of the type of community she was trying to cultivate it just looks like a fox books superstore and it's just like oh this is possible so it's not like completely condemning big business and retail because the spirit of reading and especially when she sees the children reading too like the kids don't give a shit where it comes from Mm -hmm. just the fact that it nurtures them and the stories that Mm -hmm. they love and i don't know there's like a good balance there it's an understanding of where the future is going when it comes to i guess gentrification and comes to like big retail taking over the spirit of independent bookstores and people but i don't know there's a there's a good balance there and i like that this movie is prescient enough and forward thinking enough to embrace those perspectives mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's not really 
it's not I agree with you there is something sort of forward looking about it and like I said you you do end it feeling kind of hopeful I mean obviously you have the happy ending for Joe and Kathleen but it's not a nostalgic movie you know I mean like watching it now it makes you nostalgic for the 90s you know whatever it's cozy it's Nora Ephron but like the the script itself is not really nostalgic I don't think Um, it's it's very balanced and, and very pragmatic I think yeah it's really self aware which is one of the things that I really loved about it that it is not you know Greg Kinnear is the one who's condemning technology and so and social yeah, media and his, essentially yeah and his character is kind of a joke in certain respects right. right and he's the one who's like obsessed with how things used to be and <laughs> you know wanting back this past and the pontification of at yes dead, and the fucking typewriter yeah the typewriter <laughs> yeah which I remember having a typewriter as like a little kid I miss it there's something cool yeah. about just poking buttons and yeah. shit I mean, I have a mechanical keyboard because I like the sounds that it makes. So, you know. Yeah. I I, I feel him. (laughs) There are definitely ASMR videos about people pressing on keyboards and getting satisfaction from that shit. So, you know, there's something there's something beautiful about analog and just the craft that comes with making something out of nothing. And I guess I don't know. I feel like people like us are also people who like filmmaking just because it is such a craft heavy build your dreams out of nothing thing. I don't know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, yeah. Meg Ryan's fucking gorgeous. Although there, there is one outfit because I usually like her in every outfit. But did really in the nineties, they would really used to put like vests over sweaters, like turtlenecks. Yeah, did we really do that? <laughs> and it's like that's one nineties thing. I'm like, don't bring it. It's back. like the turtleneck is sheer black, but like the vest is like slightly blackish brown. And it's just off shade enough that I'm sitting there just like, there's something wrong with that. Like, is she, did she forget to take that off? No, that's, because I saw another character wearing that in the movie, and that's a dude. Okay, oh no, this is a double, oh no, this is a trend. Why? (laughs) Yeah, I, yeah, the vest look is not, not one that I would like to see come back. But yeah, I, I think I, in general, though, Meg Ryan in this movie is definitely fashion gold. She's she looks very even the hair. It's it's very it's yeah. yeah I love her hair. If I had any patience for <laughs> styling my hair, I would like that haircut. But I don't want to spend forty five minutes on I, it every morning. I feel like nowadays there's a real danger of trying to achieve that haircut, and you go for the you yeah. go for that, and you get the Karen instead, and that's a yeah. very well, scary. It, and it's, because it's the Meg Ryan's haircut in this is is close to the Rachel yes. in that it's like all of these layers and if you don't style it correctly, it's, it's not, not gonna work. <laughs> One yeah. layer out of place, you're gonna fuck it up. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> so if I was better with a blow dryer, I would have that hairstyle. <laughs> this is this is foreign to me. Like I just like I'm just realizing that like ends can get stuck. And I'm sitting here just mm-hmm. going like, how the fuck do you people... Because I'm trying to run my fingers through my hair and then I get caught. Mm-hmm. And then there's like mm-hmm. a knot and then you have to like tear it almost. It's like, oh God. That's why I, I chop my hair off. I've had it short for I've years. Seen, I've never grown I've it seen out. it. And I'm like, you know what? I really like the way I look with long hair. Like I was able to tie it in a ponytail before. I'm like, this is cool. And then now I'm just like, ugh. It's like, I don't know. I got to get better. Yeah, I have to deal with it. Yeah, I got to deal with it. What the fuck? I thought this was supposed to be low maintenance. You just let it grow. 
<laughs> Welcome to Hair t- Hair Today Gone Tomorrow, a podcast about hairstyles. Uh, <laughs> we're gonna move on to uh, Jake Kasdan's Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. Mr. Cox, Mr. Cox, give him a minute, son. Dewey Cox needs to think about his entire life before he plays. From the time he was a boy. Ain't no six-year-old understand the true meaning of the blues. I reckon I might. I done a bad thing. Cut my brother in half. Not bad for your first time. The music of Dewey Cox Take my hand. has had an effect on people. It's the devil's music! From the guy who brought you Talladega Nights and Superbad. You have got to give up this dream! You're never gonna make it! And maybe you don't believe in me after all. I do believe in you. I just know you're gonna fail. Columbia Pictures presents The Epic Journey. Walking to the top of a mountain ain't easy. It's a long, hard walk. But I will walk hard. Of the man who became a legend. Walk hard. The Beatles won't hang out, so I'm gonna go do that. With meditation, there's no limit to what we can imagine. This Christmas. I'm leaving you. You can take the children, but you leave me, my monkey. When it comes to music. I ain't good enough to follow Elvis. There's two things you need to know. I'm the king. And number two is look out, man. You see how close I came to your head? I can chop a man in half. I'm guilty as John. No legend is bigger than Cox. You met my new wife, Cheryl Cox T. Thanks, buddy Holly. What do you think, George Harrison? The one, the only, Dewey Cox. And thank you, Eddie Vader. Walk hard. What happened to you, Dewey? I don't know, but I know what happened to you. Patrick Deppy took a beating. Walk hard. My life has been blessed, from my singing to my family to my sausage. It doesn't say Cox unless I say it tastes like Cox. Walk hard. This is the silliest movie on the list. It is also one I very much enjoy because it's <laughs> it's almost like explaining the joke so much that it becomes funny as a result. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I I love all of this. I'm a big Walk the Line fan. I love the stories of Elvis Presley and the Beatles, like the myth of all these popular legends of the 50s uh, through uh, the 70s and today. And this movie just goes for it with unabashed silliness and complete dedication to the form of a biopic movie. Yes. Like, It is played straight in many ways. It is structured like a biopic. Like, it is not... Yeah, it's it's very committed to the bit. That's exactly how I would describe it. Yeah. And I love (laughs) that the filmmaking doesn't bullshit around. It's not like... What I originally thought this was, because I had never seen this, and I'd kind of avoided it for a couple years because it came out around the time as like those, uh, not even the scary movie sequels, because I like those, 
but like this the spin-offs of those so like date movie and meet the spartans and like epic movie and those like almost van wilder the seltzer and friedberg shit yes the seltzer and friedberg <laughs> shit i thought this was going to be in the same vein and usually with those movies the lighting is flat and the you know production is cheap but kasdan's not fucking around like that opening shot the opening scene whenever young dewey who has just cut his brother in half with a machete in the silliest of ways turns out if you get cut in half like and it can't like it can't be like chest you have to do straight halfway Mm. through the middle you can be like a chicken Mm -hmm. and still survive for about like a solid three minutes before you finally croak and in the walk hard universe in the walk hard universe (laughs) eventually in the 1970s they may or may not have the ability to put top halves and bottom halves together and reattach them it just depends on how far you are from a hospital but uh (laughs) after that that scene whenever he's discovering the blues for the first time again warm colors that sort of like amber glow the guys are singing the blues like and it looks really really good it looks like shit like james mangold would have fucking directed it but uh it no it's jake kasdan and then it's this silly little kid doing the effect of like where they have like a grown man's voice and the kids just lip syncing to it a grown black man (laughs) singing this this little white kid who's like who's lip syncing to it yes yeah i love that i love that observation about the filmmaking because it's one of the things that i appreciate about this film is that it's it's made very much in the sincere style and the competent and well-made style of one of these like oscar bait biopics oh yeah like even that silhouette at the very beginning the sort of wraparound mm -hmm. that opens the movie where it's Mm -hmm. like dewey cox and like a pure black silhouette with like a slight sort of Mm -hmm. gray smoke at the bottom Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really intense yeah. shit. Yeah, and I think one thing that kind of goes along with this, as we're talking, you know, we're talking about how this this movie is a one hundred percent a spoof, but in many ways is sort of recreating a biopic in a sort of sincere way. I think the casting of um, of John C. Riley. <laughs> yes, thank you. Okay. Um, the casting of John C. Riley really goes along with this because this was the first comedy that John C. Riley had done. This was like the first, this was before he started doing stuff with Will Ferrell. Like this was kind of touted as his first, you know, um, his first full on comedy. And what makes John C. Riley such a fit for this film, because I do think that this is John C. Riley's finest performance. And oh, I wow. 4,000 words about it. Uh, what makes him so good in this film is that he is hilarious and he can do the comedy, but he also, for a lot of the movie, plays it kind of straight. Like, he ha- he he plays the dramatic moments sort of, you know, with an appropriate amount of, of gravitas and seriousness. Um, and then, you know, when appropriate, he goes over the top right. to make it funny. Um, like, this is a dark fucking period. <laughs> <laughs> Or when he's ripping sinks out of the walls. Yo, um, take a shot every time John C. <laughs> Riley rips a sink out in this movie. You'll be yeah. fine for the first yeah. part, but then there's that last bit when he's finally in the bathroom and just tearing down six or you'll seven. You'll be hammered. Yo, you'll be gone. <laughs> yeah, and so he he has the dramatic chops, he has the comedic chops, and he can sing. So everybody you know, can sing well really, in this. 
Yeah, I mean, he is really performing these songs to perfection. And I think that John C. Riley is one of the few performers who could anchor this film properly. And he nails it. I think this is a fantastic performance from him. I love it so much. And he's one of my favorite actors. I love John C. Riley. Yeah, I think a long time ago when I used to write written reviews, I did something called like the John C. Riley O-meter or like like it's sort of like, oh, if John C. Riley is in your movie, it's going to be bomb. So like you'd have like Chicago, you'd have Step Brothers, and then you've got like Guardians of the Galaxy. And that was the review that I wrote it for. If he shows up, you're good. And yeah, John C. Riley is selling the fuck out of this. My the songs are some of my favorite things. Like it's it's that deceptively good soundtrack to where like you leave it on in the background you could play it off as regular music and it really just takes yeah. somebody kind of listening into the lyrics to realize wait what the fuck is he actually saying let's do yeah. it is amazing that is one of my favorite songs on the soundtrack in your dream in my dreams you're blowing me some, some kisses, kisses. <laughs> gets me every time i've seen this movie i can't tell you how many times and every time that gets me I I love that duet and and the I would love to make too, out you know? <laughs> what you're saying. It's just, oh my god! It has I, I just want I just want to beat off all my demons. <laughs> no, when it got to that, I lost it. I was like I was like fuck you! You don't get to do that. You, how the fuck do you get away from that? It's so good, it's and so uh, Jenna Jenna she's Fisher so is good. also so good in this movie. She's playing sort of a, a June Ca- June yeah. Carter Cash ripoff yeah. um, called Darlene, named Darlene. Yeah, and she's so good. And and there's a I don't think it's necessarily supposed to be a reference to some like it hot, but I love those the train scene in Walk Hard when she gets up in his bunk, his train. Oh bunk. yeah, <laughs> and they're all squished together. <laughs> And it's so um, exaggerated because yeah. they're both like they're being rocked by the train, but for some reason both of them are like mouth breathers, so they're like this close to each other, yeah, like they're just like, <gasps> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it's just like we can't give in to our lesser demons. Here, take my hand, which is also like a great callback to the first song that he ever wrote, mm-hmm. which is supposed mm-hmm. to be so innocent. Yeah. When it's like, oh, you know what "take yeah. my hand" means, and she basically has him grab her tit and just yeah. snuggle up it's in so bed. Good. It's oh, it's funny. I'm just resisting the temptation to just quote this film i mean it's so it really is so funny and um yeah i think because it's yeah this first part the part when um when dewey cox meets darlene he's married yeah and so that's the thing they meet but they can't be together because he's married and there's that Um, tension and and that duet song is laced with just a montage of them doing shit and it basically Mm. plays out like the first couple scenes of a porno like my my favorite yes they're like doing is like when she's got the saw and all you Uh see is just like and he's got the hammer and he's just like <laughs> just wildly just he's not even looking at where his other hand is he's just fucking hitting the side it's so good and then they're like riding the horses and it looks like they're it looks up like and down yeah. it's so good it's so good it's so good oh he's also like <laughs> trying to like jerk off like a chair leg at one point when he's doing yeah this. yeah yeah he's <laughs> it's so good what is your favorite musical number is it let's do it because as soon as I heard I, I want to beat off I'm like how are you gonna oh my demons that fucking got <laughs> me um I guess like ser- if I'm being serious here 
there's something about the corniness of those kind of variety shows that sort of like Elvis Presley style uh, variety show that he was doing. When he sings Starman, I really do think John uh, John C. Riley can do a really good Starman. I also the disco version of Starman yeah. lives rent free in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I also like the very ending one. Just, uh, I don't know, it's a really beautiful song. It's it's called A Beautiful Ride, and it's supposed to be like this yes. legacy, him talking about all the things that he's experienced in his life. But if you ignore the fact that it's just a very silly movie beforehand, like, it's a really solid track, you know? Yeah, until he starts talking about one of the things that he learned is to travel, but not just for business. No, but just not for business. <laughs> I think that's one of the things that he says he's like that he learned to travel and not just for business yeah <laughs> yeah that's a good one I really like Beautiful Ride it's a great way to end yeah to and end it's the, the film. really really sweet uh, mm, it is and it's a good melody yeah and like these songs genuinely rule and because they genuinely rule then you know you're kind of lured into this idea of like oh this really works as like it's own biopic okay can we talk about the cameos? Because yes. <laughs> I knew of some. I've seen like you. You scroll on TikTok. You see like some like you know that. Uh, I knew beforehand that Jack Black was going to be in this playing Paul McCartney. Yeah, I knew that Jack White was going to be Elvis. I did not know how good Jack White's Elvis impression was going to be. And how much of a cool performance he is trying to karate chop like John C. Riley in the face, but eventually going like mumblecore on him. I also love that I don't think he has an intelligible line. Like, I don't think you can hear anything he actually says. He just makes the... Yeah, he's like, he's boom-howering it to a motherfucking degree. Like, it's really, really good. It's good. It's so good. What I did not know was that Frankie fucking Muniz, Malcolm in the Middle, plays Buddy Holly. And I was like, Buddy Holly. what? What are you doing here? Fucking Jack McBrayer mm. shows up in this thing. Uh, I did not know Craig Robinson was going to show up. And I didn't know Craig Robinson was going to... Speaking of motherfuckers that could like technically anchor this movie, Craig Robinson's yeah. voice is amazing. He does. He can he sing very so well. so well at this opening yeah, line. I mean... <laughs> Another movie that I that I love and have seen many times, This Is the End, is is what I think of when I think of Craig Robinson singing. Yeah. I think of him singing his stupid Take Your Panties Off song. <laughs> but he can actually sing. And he does it really, 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 really well. Uh, there's that one. Uh, when Jewel shows up to sing at the sort of Lifetime Achievement Award, got me. Because that's just fucking yes. funny. Uh-huh. And then what finally sent me over the edge to go what the fuck out loud Eddie Vedder of all people (laughs) so good of all the grunge guys like Dave Grohl I get it he's a clown he's like a playful dude Eddie Vedder is like notoriously to himself but he appreciates a good speech that they make (laughs) the speech that they make him give to is so stupid (laughs) he's talking about like all Oh, I love it. It's so good. And he plays it straight because it's Eddie Vedder and he doesn't yeah, know oh, how to do oh. it anything else. He's just like, yeah. here's you go, Legacy of a Man. It's like, Dewey Cox. And just even the name. <laughs> like, they have so much yes. rant, mouth-free so many, with cock jokes. So many cock jokes. So many. I mean, one one that I think you might not have seen, 
I because I, I forget because I always watch the extended version. Which oh, I actually shit. like better. I think I think the pacing is better in the extended. There's an version. extended version but of this. There is, and it's wait. Better. How would I? Mm. How would I know if I saw the extended <clears throat> version? I saw it on. Uh, I rented it on Vudu of all places. It was probably the theatrical cut then. Okay. Because um, I think the extended one is marked extended. Oh, okay. Um, but what they expand a lot of is the 70s section. Okay. So I think it actually makes the pacing work better. Yeah. Because it's really rushed in the theatrical yeah. version. Um, but there's a whole extended joke about um, he dates the model Cheryl um, Cheryl Tease. So it's Cheryl <laughs> Cox Tease is her name once they get married. <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> That's yeah. fucking beautiful. Anyway, there are so many Cox jokes. <laughs> I also love uh, the pacing of this particular scene when, like, he's... Uh, first off, oh, Kristen Wiig. I forgot to mention Kristen Wiig's in this. And she's really yes. damn good in it. She is so good. Like, she's silly and whatnot. <laughs> yeah. She's like, I'm his girlfriend and I'm 12 years old. Oh, my it's like, God. We're, that gets me we're every not time. Gonna, we're not going to fucking go there. Lord knows. <laughs> she's, what, Lord knows fucking you're... Margot Martindale shows up. First off, Margot Martindale, God bless her. Uh, she's in this mm. movie. But she shows up at the mm. talent show and she's like, how's my 14-year-old son doing? And, and all this time, you've only seen kid actors play Dewey. You turn around, it's fucking John C. Riley, And I'm like, are you serious <laughs> right now? It's so good. It's so good. Uh, yeah, Kristen Wiig is fantastic in this movie. I was trying so hard to, to like make a meme. I couldn't. I couldn't get it to work, okay. <laughs> but I was trying to make a meme about the part where Kristen Wiig tells Dewey Cox she's had she's got a monkey and she's got a giraffe like they've got all of these exotic yeah. animals and, and the giraffe's she's got name the is Shorty and that's so cute yeah. <laughs> and she's got like the the monkey on her hip and and uh, she and Dewey Cox are fighting and I can't remember what he says before but he says something about like I can get you you know another animal I can get you another pet and she goes like and she <laughs> she tells Dewey she's like this ain't no about this ain't about no exotic pets Dewey it's about love <laughs> and like she's got the monkey on her hip and I was trying to make a Mitzi Fableman like connection <laughs> between and I, <laughs> I just couldn't do it but I was trying so fucking hard and then I was like, okay, the last time I spent an hour on a walk hard meme, like nobody liked it, so I'm not, I'm not gonna. Do wait, wait, wait! The last time you spent an hour, how many walk hard <laughs> memes did. have you made? Only one. So, do you watch The Boys? No, but I could probably okay, figure well, this out. So, <clears throat> so there's a there's a scene in The Boys where one character is like doing drugs, basically, and they're like putting injecting this thing V to um it turns you into a temporary superhero you don't want none of this main, shit yeah it turns you yeah, exactly. into a superhero <laughs> exactly so the main character who is played by meg ryan's son really uh <laughs> yes there's our connection yeah. he comes into the room and, and catches this other character you know shooting up and it, it is it's like that you don't want no part of this shit <laughs> and so i made a, a meme joke yeah <laughs> so i made a meme where i like I, I did it. I did the screen grabs from this episode of The Boys, but then, like, put the text of, um, from the, I think it was the cocaine one, <laughs> cocaine, um, and changed it to the... It turns all no your bad it. feelings into good feelings. Yes. And no one liked it, so I was like, okay, I'm not gonna do this again. I'm not gonna make another niche walk hard hey, meme. Hey, look, I was you gotta make your so niche hard. walk hard meme. The problem is not the <laughs> meme. The problem is finding the audience. Exactly, yes. exactly. I will get your walk hard memes. <laughs> I will totally understand them now. Because I did have a Mitzi yeah. Fableman vibe going as soon as he brought the monkey home. Right? I'm like, what is it with these motherfuckers and monkeys? Like, yeah, I, it, it exactly. makes no sense to me. Yeah, exactly. 
glad you I'm glad you picked it up too. I um, I just yeah. saw the Fable Wins. Like I really liked it. And yet the too. monkey is just like, what is it with monkeys? Although it's really cool. <laughs> it's like doing the episode for that one, for the Fable Wins that I put out. I'm using Google to see the cast. And then you scroll down and it's mm-hmm. all these actors. And then in the bottom right corner, it says Crystal the monkey playing Benny the monkey. And it's this monkey, <laughs> oh it's God. this headshot of this monkey. And the monkey is just like a thumbs up and a smile. And it's oh so cute. It's, ex- that's so cute. it's exploitative, but it's so cute. <laughs> so cute yeah so i i do love Kristen wig in this movie she's funny she's great um as the first wife (laughs) and then yeah yeah and tim meadows also another mvp of of this movie um you don't want no part of this shit is probably the most famous part of this movie the running gag about uh dewey walking in on his manager Tim Meadows doing various drugs various and every time every every time the manager says you don't want no part of this shit (laughs) um it's great and uh yeah (laughs) I think my favorite part my favorite one is the first one because it leads to this extended argument of weed he goes this is briefer it's like you can't overdose on this shit it's like no one's ever died on this thing it's like it's actually one of the cheapest drugs around like it's a sales pitch for weed yeah but you don't want none of this shit yeah I think I kind of do It's so good. And I love that all it takes is for this actress, I don't know her name, but she's a really good extra in it. She's like, oh, come here. This is how you take it. And she, like, gets really close and sexually, like, blows, you know, smoke in his mouth. And then the next cut is him just off of weed. Now he's surrounded by a bunch of half-naked chicks. He's in the hotel with everybody that's naked. Yeah. Also in the extended cut, you get male full frontal. You do get that in the extended wait, cut. I got, wait, wait, wait. I did get male full frontal in this one. You get more. Oh. Do I get erect full frontal? Because I, all I... No, no, no. I was about to say, no. all I saw was just like very like... Very floppy v- dick. Not even yes. floppy, like just standby. Like as if I were to like leave the laptop alone and then all you'd have to do is like poke it a little bit and then it would wake back up. Mm very like because it's about inches away from john c Riley's face this flaccid this non-activated penis yes, and i see it twice yes, yes yes there's more in the extended cut uh but i think that that brings me to my other favorite running joke uh the wrong kid died <laughs> <laughs> every time this dad shows up it kills me and i think it doesn't matter how many times I watch the movie. Every single time it gets to the the scene where the dad tries to kill Dewey with the machete. That is hilarious. I am in tears on the floor every time. And I know it's coming, but when he says that he's spent years training his body and mind. Again, another <laughs> character that has like a movie montage. It's like Kill Bill yes. for this guy. Because yes. his young son accidentally slipped off. I also love the opening montage. It's like, I love that I have such a long life and things that I can do because I'm young. And then they proceed to go and fuck around with snakes and scorpions and tractors. And then they just have a machete fight yeah exactly i know it's It's beautiful it's ridiculous it's so funny but yeah that that dad is so good he cracks me up every time 
Uh, <laughs> and I guess it's easier than I thought to accidentally cut someone in half with a machete. I don't blame you for killing Nate anymore, Tui. I understand how this could be an accident. It's it's, it's ridiculous. I, and then he yeah, pulls the, the wrong kid. He died. pulls the Doctor Who thing where it's like I love, and then he dies. He's like, "You love what, Daddy?" And then he kicks the legs, and he goes, "No." <laughs> it's him kicking the legs for me that just gets it. The bottom torso yeah. goes down. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, and and again, that you know, there, this movie reference like directly references a lot of biopics and and. Uh, facts you know uh, from rock history like there's a whole section you know where Dewey Cox is basically um doing the um oh the guy from the Beach Boys oh the Brian Wilson thing yeah he's doing a Brian Wilson he's making his smile um and like there's that you know and then the there are so many beats in the movie that are taken pretty much directly from Walk Hard um and this cutting the brother in half with a machete is 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 a, a nod to <laughs> to Johnny Cash, um, just taken to the extreme. Yeah, and um, then the whole like Elvis mythology of like he had a twin brother and the twin brother died. This is how the twin mm-hmm. brother died. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, by yeah. the way, have you ever heard of a movie called The Immortal or The Identical? Sorry, no. The Identical is one of the worst movies I've ever seen, but it's amazing because it's a faith-based version of this story that, uh, okay, how do I explain this? It's the whole Elvis had a twin thing, but it's not Elvis, it's Drexel Hemsley. And so he's the Elvis impersonator of this world. And Joey Pants plays his religious father who's like I don't want you to play no rock and roll boy of course the you know twins are separated at birth they didn't die and so later in life this guy who looks exactly like Elvis slash Drexel Hemsley is listening to this dude on the radio like man who's this this guy's really cooking and he starts singing the guy's song and he gets a gig being the identical opening act for this Elvis uh, like guy this Drexel Hemsley and you would think that this is a universe where Elvis doesn't exist but no because they mention at one point uh, the twin the identical is like I want to do my own songs and it's like you don't do your own songs because there's only one Bob, there's only one Bob Dylan there's only one Elvis Presley and there's only one Drexel Hemsley and Drexel Hemsley sings and sounds and looks exactly like Elvis Presley. So he is the ripoff to the ripoff of Elvis Presley. That's wild. And he's finding Jesus all throughout. That Wow, that sounds like a hell of and a movie. And Seth Green plays his best friend. Oh my God. Seth Green's in it. Wearing the exact kind of 50s pompadour you would expect fucking Seth Green wow. to wear. This It's amazing. Wow. Uh, just wow. it, it might as well be its own parody movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Walk Hard is so interesting to me because it came out in 2007. It was parodying a certain crop of music biopics yeah. like Walk the Line and Ray, um, Beyond the Sea, all that kind of stuff. It was not a hit when it came out. It didn't make its budget back. It made no money, which was kind of surprising because this movie was co-written and produced by... Judd Apatow, yeah. and he was at the height of his powers. 2007 was that also was like, the year of knockdown. That was like 40-year-old yeah. version had come out beforehand, and yeah. then boom, yeah. Yeah, 
Yeah, and so um, Judd Apatow was really prominent in the marketing for this uh, film, and you know they did like a little mini tour where um, John C. Riley performed hope, as Dewey I Cox. I hope to God, I'm so glad they did. They did. They were really pushing this movie, but it, it didn't find its audience at the time. And I didn't come to this film until a little bit later. I didn't see it when it first came out. Um, and I fell in love with it the second I watched it. But um, but it's been really interesting to see Walk Hard kind of find its audience in the last maybe five years with this new batch of musical biopics yes. beginning with Bohemian Rhapsody. And I think as people are getting more kind of fed up or sick of this batch of musical biopics, they're like, oh, Walk Hard, this is hilarious. Walk Hard should have killed this kind of movie. <laughs> and um, I like, I can't tell you how often Walk Hard comes up in reviews of the new Elvis movie from this year. Like, there are so many reviewers who mentioned Walk Hard. There was one in particular, I can't remember who wrote it, but I wish I could. And they basically s- described the plot of Elvis as trying to out Walk Hard, Walk Hard. <laughs> and I was like, that's exactly what Boz Lerman did. He tried to out walk hard, walk hard. <laughs> Using Tom so Hanks really... and a copious yeah, amount know. of pills. I know, I know. It's been really fun seeing this movie find its audience now um, a little bit later. it's. I mean, I don't like to use the term cult classic because it doesn't mean anything. Um, but if, you, if you're if you thinking about a cult classic as like a movie that didn't find its audience when it came out and found its audience later, I guess it qualifies. Um but it's it's been fun, like find like you know watching people discover this movie <laughs> and wonder how it didn't kill the genre because it should have. <laughs> I don't know. It's like uh, I guess with with parody movies, I guess the best ones are just like really good snapshots in time. It's kind of why like Scary Movie two and one work. It's why like what are your what are your favorite like parody movies? Are you a big parody movie person? I do like parody movies. I love Walk Hard, obviously. Yeah. I Another movie that almost made this list, that could have made this list, but I didn't want two musical parodies on there, is Popstar, Never Stop, Never Stopping. Okay. That's also one of my favorite movies. <laughs> have you seen I it? I have. I'm not the craziest fan of it, but I do like yeah. the joke whenever he... Ripped, don't they play fun of like the whole time that U2 put their album on everybody's iTunes, but instead he puts his yes, album yes, on a yes. Samsung fridge? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was yeah. funny. Yeah. And, and I love that one. And that one is, like you said, is very much a snapshot of a time because it was making fun of all of those um, kind of pop star documentaries that were coming out in theaters, like the One Direction one and the Katy Perry and the one. And the, one. Um, Actually, Justin Bieber, Bieber had two. And like, you did have two, yeah. And I think that's not something that happens anymore. Like those kind of movies don't come out in the theater anymore. Yeah. It's not like the event that it used to be. Um, so that one is kind of an interestingly sort of dated parody now, even though it's only like six years old I guess. <laughs> um and then i love uh young frankenstein yes. i love mel brooks and young young frankenstein is my favorite <laughs> yeah i mean you, it doesn't oh get and Spaceballs. like you gotta do you gotta love yeah Spaceballs. exactly Spaceballs. and then again i guess they just have basic taste i love airplane airplane's great <laughs> so i like i like the classic the classic spoof movies <laughs> yeah same uh yeah, no, Walk Hard just really, really works of the silliness and sort of like the real focus on this is the structure of the movie. We're going to tell you that this is the structure of the movie and just go with it. And then we're going to throw some like great jokes in the background, uh, get some of these characters to really like 
focus in on the drama of what's going on at times and go for it. Like, uh, although one of the greatest gags is I'm watching this movie as I'm taking care of my kid. So I got to change my kid's diaper. And it's in the scene whenever Dewey decides to be a father for the first time and just start playing catch with all of his kids. And so I see that first part and I'm like, oh, that's kind of cute. Like he's cycling through the kids. I'm changing my kid's diaper. And then all I hear is Dewey just go like, wait, are you one of mine? And I look up and it's some like platinum blonde, like Asian kid. And just the mere sight of me lifting my face up and seeing that kid as the reaction to that shot lost. Like I started dying. (laughs) That was the funniest fucking thing. I I love that sequence when he plays catch with all of his kids. <laughs> it's just like wow, you're really so bad weird. at this. I'm like, yeah, I didn't have a father to help raise. Like, it's the most passive aggressive shit in the world. It's just oh, so great. I know, I know, and I love how it's played straight too. Like, all the kids forgive him, and now he's got a great relationship with all these kids he'd never met. Yeah, before. he's got like, like the right, he's got like the sure. Partridge family now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> how many kids does he say he has? It's like some ridiculous number. He has 22 he kids. Says- and all of them are named the version of a Dewey. A version of Dewey. My favorite yeah. is Dewey. Dewey Rahim is the one. Dewey Rahim oh, is his grandkid. Dewey Rahim is his grandkid. I love that. Dewey Rahim is his grandkid. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very silly. <laughs> Look, if you don't like silliness, like you you could just log off. Like you you knew you weren't gonna be into this if you don't like the silliness. Cause like movies right. just need to be silly sometimes. Yeah, yeah. It, it does. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, I think I love how silly this movie is. I absolutely have a silly sense of humor. And then the, I, the, the, the work and the craftsmanship that went into this film, like on the songs and the, the, um, the cinematography and the production design and all that, really cements it yes. as just this. It's just the perfect blend of seriousness and ridiculousness, and the ratio is just right. <laughs> and I, it's that's kind of it's a it's a combo that is hard to achieve with spoofs and i think that walk hard hits it right where it needs it to. hits it really really well uh one of my favorite bits and i'm gonna close with this because uh i was busy texting my buddy after it was over i was like have you seen this movie because i was about to go off on the cameos and while i'm dicking around on my phone the credits are playing and then i look up and then they say they have John C. Riley in like slightly different makeup in black and white, and it just goes the real Dewey Cox, and he's fucking playing the guitar. I'm like, <laughs> so that's good. amazing. That's it's so such good. a great capper of a joke. It's so good. <laughs> no, I it's love the it. attention to detail that I makes this it. shit work. You can't parody something unless it you is. really love it. Right, 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 and it's yeah, it's so good. <laughs> It is the perfect way to end the film. Yeah. So if you only know Jay Kasdan from like the Jumanji movies, you gotta give Walkhart a try. This thing is fucking fun. Yeah, it is. <laughs> okay, so that's it. That's the four films that make up Leah Carlson Downey. And we're gonna close this, I guess, with a little bit more get to know you. This is the first time I do this. I'm doing a speed round. Uh, okay. let's go with some of the things that I asked here. Oh, I forgot to mention this in the You've Got Mail segment, so I'm going to add this in now. Uh, a quote from uh, Delayed Responses, Leah's website. <laughs> Much like Kathleen Kelly, when faced with an insult, Leah's mind goes blank. 
She can only think of the perfect thing to say about the film days or weeks later after some reflection. My question is, what is the best delayed response to an insult or an I should have said this situation that you've ever crafted? Oh, that's a hard one. I know. I don't know. I don't. Now I'm on the spot. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to have to think about that and get back to you. <laughs> Seems appropriate. And that's what we call irony. Exactly. All right, so speed round. Who is the sexiest founding father? Oh, damn. Um, like in real life? Go for it. I don't... Like how they actually looked? Yeah. Alexander Hamilton was pretty hot. He was pretty hot, actually, now that I think yeah. about it. Uh, uh, best song you've ever heard? song i've ever heard Ooh, hmm. that's a hard one uh hmm. <laughs> speed round is hard i told you i'm not good at this <laughs> um best song i've ever heard. uh i don't know <laughs> I don't know. There are too many good ones i can't pick you can do it just grab the first grab know. the first one that comes to mind person that comes to mind um i've been listening to a lot of patty griffin so i've got making pies on my on my mind i love that song <laughs> all right uh if you had to acting or directing acting what's your pet peeve as a librarian Ooh, my pet peeve like specifically as a librarian specifically as a librarian i think this is this is sort of just a a front-facing like customer service job thing in general just anyone who comes in with an entitled attitude and like assumes that you're trying to screw them over Uh, it's like i'm here in my do my job is to help you and when you assume that that's not what i'm doing that pisses me off. like what is the point of me talking to why would i want to make my job harder Right, exactly. Like, I'm not yeah. lying to you. You really <laughs> right, cannot pick right. up your medication. It is too early. Sorry, I'm exactly. a pharmacy technician. I yeah. have the same vibes. <laughs> uh, what's a recent article, podcast, or work which you're proud of? Oh, that I've done? Yeah. Oh. Like something Ooh. that you'd recommend to people. Like what are you really proud that you've done recently? Um. Recently, I recapped the Interview with a Vampire series, the new AMC TV series. Mm -hmm. I did the recaps for ScreenSpec. I'm a staff writer there now. And it's the first time I've done TV recaps. And I was really happy with how they turned out. And I loved the show. I really lucked out that I loved the show as much as I did because it made writing the recaps easy. So that would be my recommendation for my writing. Very (laughs) nice. And uh, I'm going to start doing this last question for... uh, this last question is based off one of my favorite interviewers actually my favorite interviewer of all time and i'm stealing his because unfortunately he's dead uh from the from the classic man james lipton if heaven exists what would you like to hear god say when you arrive at the pearly gates Mm, that's a good one that's a good one to steal i love james lipton yeah me too um it would have to be something, you know, God would say it nicer, but, you know, you had a positive impact. I would like to know that most of the ways that I touched people were positive and that I improved people's lives rather than making them harder. 
And my friends, that's Leah Carlson Downey. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been a blast and an absolute honor. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was so fun. <laughs> and I'm glad you liked 1770s. Dude, I fucking <laughs> love that shit. Like, I was I was dying. I was watching that at work and just, like, telling my friends, like, uh, telling people there is just like, yo, like, the, it's like, oh, my God. The delegates from New Jersey just showed up. They took like an hour to get into this movie. And then later I was like, wait, 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 wait. These aren't the ones that were going to take an hour to get to the movie. They just got so like fed up with the old guys not being able to find the Philadelphia Congress that they just sent new guys instead. <laughs> and they're looking at me like, Daniel, you're nuts. But I'm, it's fucking funny. Shut up. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, no, Leah is absolutely fantastic. I've got my own recommendations, and I'm going to toss in the uh, description for something that you should listen to. Uh, For both podcasts, she does Oscars podcast, and the Ex Machina episode I really, really like. Because they go into not only, I guess, the nature of AI, but how, like, the creators of AI can influence... Like, the problematic uh, ways with the creators of AI, like, are... I guess are discussing about like making AI that look like women and what sort of biases go into creating that AI and what does that mean about how men think about women in general like that observation that goes on in that episode I really really loved and then because I am a Twilight girly uh, their episodes of the fan fan club on Breaking Dawn parts one and two are awesome because I love. <laughs> both of those movies for each of the reasons that you two chose i love campy trash i also love a movie where in this ridiculous goth inspired like bill condon did so well with that series and i love the they are my favorites truly the franchise but like in this like goth like camp exercise he also is bringing up like oh edward's not really he's kind of problematic when it comes to abortion let's go talk about abortion for a little bit (laughs) it's like this movie's absurd and it's like rated r and it's like not sexy but it's like just some weird demented version of that and these two uh leah and brie her co-host are fucking comedians when it comes to that so those are two episodes i recommend (laughs) of her podcast that you should go uh you can find those podcasts wherever you find podcasts or a description I'll link to wherever Leah wants me to link to the interview with a vampire series I'm going to link that in the description below too if you want to hang out with me you can do so on Twitter at the movies underscore pod Instagram at the movies pod letterboxd I think dot com slash Daniel underscore Barrios it's all in the description you know where to find it uh, rate and review the show you can rate it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you review it on Apple Podcasts, I will read it. I promise you, this is not a joke. I check it every single day. The shit has not moved. So if you're on Apple, if you're on an iPhone, rate and review that shit. Let me know. Let us know what's going down. And uh, I guess the very last thing I'll do, I'm going to ask you for another song. Because we usually close it out with a song. And I normally pick, but I let my guests uh, pick. Just any song that you would like to have us play you out to. Well, I feel like it should be a song from Walk Hard. I think we should. you should play me out with Let's Duet. <laughs> <laughs> we want to blow <laughs> your minds. <laughs> in our dreams we're blowing your mind 
I want to beat off all my demons. And that's how we're going to close it, friends. Thank you for another, thank you for listening to another episode of In Four Films. And from me and Leah, y'all take care. This is Let's Do It from John C. Riley and Jenna Fisher. Hello, darling. Hello, Mr. Cox. You ready to sing one? I'm always ready. Well, all right. In my dreams, you're blowing me some kisses. That's one of my favorite things to do. You and I could go down in history. That's what I'm praying to do with you. Let's do it. Feel good Let's do it